This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You have declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. And night fell on a different world. And Iblis is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about you being head of the Temple of Set? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will. But... I want you to give me power over Adam. And I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. But he has, but he has so much to gain and has such a material motive for putting me in a position I'm in. We'll never let the truth back some of our boards to the, to the world. And I want you to be able to give me the ability to whisper into the hearts of mankind. And uh, who was the grotto leader? Don't remember his name. You don't remember the name of a person who involved you in murder? Now these people are in very high position, yeah. Yeah. Welcome back to Subliminal Jihad, episode 117. I am your co-host, Dimitri. I'm Khalid. And today, we're grabbing our popcorn and our red vines and our seed yeah. oil syrupy beverages. And oh no, there's seed oil in in Coke too. I you mean, know there is. The you real know. problem with Coke is that like it's just like dripping with like the blood of like colonized people. But uh, oh, I you thought know. you were gonna say like uh, infants or something like that. Oh, that's Pepsi. Well, I mean, Sorry. yeah, Pepsi yeah. has right. Pepsi is the one that has like baby Barts in it. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm sure Coke <laughs> does too. Like, why wouldn't it? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for all that, Pepsi tastes worse. So it kind of does. Yeah. I, mean, I feel like what must Coke but... have in it? If that's what Pepsi tastes like after they made a deal with the devil, like, think about You're what, right. You're you right. Know? Yeah. To quote a mortal technique, I'm from where they're too pussy to come film Survivor and they murder Coca Cola union organizers. Third uh, world. Real shit. Okay. But speaking of uh, selling your soul to the devil, that's going to be what kind of we're, we're going to be talking about today a little bit in uh, our journey back to the subliminal cinema. Yes. Mm-hmm. We're talking about a pretty interesting uh, film today that I thought would be a interesting subject for our audience because it, it, it's, it's at the intersection of a lot of different like SJ topics. Like it deals with religion. It's a horror film, something we've talked about in the past. Kind of uh, deals with liminal beings in some way, non-human entities, uh, what you might mm. call, for lack of a better term, like supernatural forces. Spoiler uh, alert, uh, g- goblins. Yeah, <laughs> goblins, uh, ghouls, yeah, of all varieties, gnomes, sort of. And, uh, you know, it also deals with Russia and Ukraine and the sort of like fraught, a relationship between the two and also you know it's uh, the soviet union uh which mm-hmm. is you know a topic of interest that we talked about in the past a lot i mean obviously a big topic but big um, topic um yeah but actually yeah it's interesting i think this might be the first sort of movie episode that we've done about a soviet film is it really wow yeah i guess it is uh we've definitely well, talked I think it's about a fitting, soviet uh, film yeah i mean this well, yeah. often gets called like the only soviet horror movie which is definitely mm-hmm. not true it could Not maybe true. be considered like the first Soviet horror movie. But as we were talking about before we started recording about whether that's true, like it really depends on like how one defines horror, like as having elements of like suspense or like causing the audience to feel afraid. Like 
lots of movies might make you feel that, uh, you know, even movies like that are like, I don't know, even a romantic comedy, you could be like worried if you're really dumb, like if whether the character's going to get together, you could be afraid for like what might happen. I mean, if you, yeah, uh, maybe, maybe yeah, like a, yeah. a drama or a tragedy, then you might be, you know, more sincerely concerned about like the fates of the characters, like, or have kind of an element of fear. I feel like uh-huh. horror is like some these nebulous uh, category, category and like a lot of the best movies really kind of defy those genre you know they're elevated genre um or they're elevated beyond genre itself but yeah i feel like maybe it has to do in some ways with like certain tropic expectations that people have where uh they like you know there's a like certain like ghosts and ghoulies or like you know killers someone's being stalked you know they're getting run around like there's murders i don't know something like that but yeah it certainly does have ghosts and ghoulies and yeah it, it, um, it's like you you could definitely make a strong argument that there are a number of movies, you know, throughout the history of Soviet cinema that are at least like para horror, or like horror adjacent or rely yeah. upon some tropes that we would recognize as horror. And, you know, that I mean, I think a lot of in a lot of cases like the uh, like the sci fi movies, which was a huge genre in the yeah. USSR. Um, right. You know, things uh, things like uh, Solaris. Exactly, you know, yeah. Uh, it's not, maybe it's not strictly a horror film. It's like a kind of sci-fi drama or sci-fi yeah. thriller. But it definitely has, ju- just as like 2001 A Space Odyssey has, cer- like uh, particularly the portion with Hal, yeah. you know, on the spaceship. Like that definitely has a very classical horror sensibility. But yeah, so same with Solaris where it's like basically... Uh, the the fear of the unknown, you know, even though that's more in a kind of like scientific way, you know, yeah. I mean, I think the, the easy dunk to make on the USSR's uh, cultural output is that because they declared, you know, ghoulies and goblins to be religious, that right. like nobody was allowed to make movies with superstitious stuff in it because mm-hmm. that's bourgeois or something like that. Right. And I think th- that idea is definitely there at various points um, as an influence, I think, on yes. like the Soviet cinematic output. And you do actually see like a lot of kind of more straight up horror type movies in the 20s, which is a much more like chaotic and experimental era. Yes. And one that usually Western artists like to romanticize the most, you know, like the era of For like Mayakovsky sure. and early Eisenstein mm-hmm. and stuff. There was even a early version, an early adaptation of the movie that we're talking about today, V, yes, um, in the, the story, 1920s. Uh, by Goggle. Yeah, I received another. Because it is like a really, you know, obviously Goggle's a very famous Russian writer, uh, and Whoa. the story is pretty um. Oh, sorry, sorry, <laughs> sorry, sorry. Wow. Uh, famous uh, wow. writer from the general sphere of historic Kivan Rus. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to correct you there. Yeah. yeah see, uh, well, as today, people might jump down your throat as I just did uh, for not specifying that he is a Ukrainian writer. Not a Russian um, writer. Well, but of according course, to Wikipedia, he is a Russian novelist of Ukrainian origin, which, yes. yeah. So, yeah, I not mean, a writer of, of the in the Ukrainian language. Like, his literature is written no. in Russian. Um, well, but it actually was peppered with, like, Ukrainianisms, which at the time, interestingly, so this is an interesting thing, that, like, it was sort of attractive to, like, a Slavophilic Russian audience. 
that, you know, in the 19th century when he was writing, you know, the uh, earlier half of the 19th century. There's obviously, like, uh, Russia has long, especially, like, in uh, modern or recent centuries, had, like, a big controversy over, like, its sort of identity between, like, the West and being, you know, in the East, maybe, for lack of a better term. And we kind of see that in the way the discourse around Russia shifts as well. So a lot of people who were kind of looking for a non-Western Russian identity you know, uh, it was funny, you were showing me some articles that were like, goggles subverted, you know, Russia by like insinuating Ukrainian nationalism. But really, mm-hmm. like they were looking for like a Russian like national identity in like the sort of Ukrainian folklore and the Ukrainian idiomatic elements that like he would kind of put into his uh, his stories, like, you know, little turns of phrase or things like that. In fact, I read that, uh, yeah. you know, because of the way that a lot of his stories are is that they're sort of uh, like a sort of model or a... Uh, a representation of oral storytelling. He'll use a kind of the Russian equivalent of a, a like, and you know, a lot, um, you know, but I guess somehow, despite that he was, you know, one of the most revered uh, writers of, uh, you know, uh, Russia slash Ukraine uh, mm-hmm. in history. So I don't know, but I, I'm surprised yeah. people didn't just like immediately turn him off when they heard how much he said like. but anyway he's uh, that's why ukrainians can never be taken seriously in yeah. greater russian cultures because wow. they mm-hmm. yeah they use yeah filler words it was some word like ved or something that like it means kind of like even that people just repeat a lot but doesn't really add semantic meaning to this it's kind of like a che like yeah a che. exactly it's like yeah. a filler word uh and he would <laughs> use those a lot yeah both he and i think dostoevsky to an extent too like in notes from the underground would use those words a lot to kind of create the sense of like oral storytelling and V the story that on which the uh, film, uh, the 1967 film and, you know, earlier adaptations are based on is an example of that where it's like kind of framed as like, I'm telling you a story that I've heard uh, from mm-hmm. kind of like a folk community in uh, what he calls a uh, Melorossia. But of course that's very inappropriate. That's uh, a slur. Yeah. Um, obviously. But right. yeah. Yeah. No, it does open up as like a folk story. And I think that's even, kind of how this movie was, I don't know, pitched or developed. And I mean, some would say like, that's how they evaded the censors, you know, mm-hmm. but I think it's like, th- that was a category of, that was a genre that basically was kind of looked upon more positively in the kind of, in, in Soviet cinema, you know, yeah. in a broad sense. So by, and because, goggles stories are very full of like supernatural horror and things like that you know almost on like a a kind of edgar Allan poe kind of tip but other and he he was influenced by a lot of other uh western european authors as well as contemporaries that you know i mean you can't avoid the supernatural element pretty much in a goggle story if you're going to adapt it faithfully which is what they did yeah it's a very straight up adaptation Yes, story, it is right? very straight. It's very faithful, actually. Um, you know, I, I read actually the story for the first time. I had read some of his other stories, like The Nose and The Overcoat, like his most famous stories. Uh, the Nose is interesting because I kind of blends like, oh, you know, in his play, uh, Revisor or Government Inspector, which is mm-hmm. uh, Revisor is kind of like a good representation of, of part of Goggle's reputation, which is that you know, it's a story about like a guy who like comes to a town and everyone thinks he's a government inspector but he's really just like some random dude. I hope I'm mm-hmm. representing the plot correctly. It's been years since I saw it or, or read it, but um, it's basically what happens, you know, like, and everyone like flatters him and treats him great, but like they're mistaking him for the government inspector. He's not really one. So it's a typical like send up of 
uh, Russian imperial bureaucracy and everything like that. And the no, like, you know, V is very much in the sort of like folk. Uh, uh, it's, it's from his collection of like, uh, you know, Ukrainian tales or like Migorod stories, I guess, which is, a, which is a city there. Yeah. So that's like one element. And the nose kind of blends them both where the nose is a crazy story about like a dude whose like nose like just falls off. And the nose, like, it, it's, like, very surreal. Like, it, it basically, like, puts on, like, uh, the outfit of, like, a superior bureaucratic official. And, like, his own nose has, like, uh, you know, gotten further in the bureaucracy than, like, he ever could. Like, you know, he ever has in his whole life. And it's, like, wow. mocking him and thwarting him. Eventually, like, he's able to reattach it at the end, I guess. But, like, yeah, you know, he has to, like, pursue his nose, like, all over the city uh, in St. Petersburg. And it's, like, you know, it, like, people will just, like, mistake it for a human and, like, treat it, like, you know a normal person yeah it's like uh it's that type of like surrealism yeah i mean it's weird to call it like supernatural but it's like kind of like maybe magical realism i know you're like an anti-magical realism type of person but it's like that's uh, no, no i mean not fully yeah. just just the, like the bourgeois like mfa like cultural cold war kind of yeah. way mm -hmm. i won't get into it now but i do think <laughs> that I mean, at the end of the day, I am kind of sympathetic to the broad concept of magical realism. Yeah. Um, at the very least, like the the breaking down of any kind of barrier between those two categories. Like you can't have anything that could be deemed magical and anything that could be deemed realism in the same story because that's, you know, that defies yeah. facts and logic or something like that, you know, or right. it has to be almost like ghettoized into a genre like fantasy or... Yeah or something like that yeah or I, even I, even horror like to call the like a horror story is like not really like you know kind of i mean it's definitely very i feel like it's very different from edgar Allan poe in a way because it definitely has that much stronger like surrealist element like i'm not like the biggest expert on poe but like as far as i know most of his stories are like either about like very macabre uh, things that happen like within ordinary turns of events, like, you know, the telltale heart, like there's yeah. no religious. I mean, I guess maybe in a way there is like, but um, it doesn't the deal with like, the unseen kinda, world. You know? It's kind of liminal, I guess. It's very liminal. Yeah. <clears throat> but um, it's also you could read it with a modern eye as kind of like, oh, well, this is the guy like he's being driven crazy by his own guilt and he's hallucinating the beating yeah. of the heart, so there's nothing really supernatural, blah, blah, blah. Or the pit and the pendulum, or the cask mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, Amontillado, or whatever yeah. it's called, yeah. Annabelle Lee, uh, things like that. Yeah, like, uh, I think at most he has, like, kind of, like, specters and ghosts, whereas, like, Goggle has that, you know, very sort of, yeah, I mean, I think that the film does this very well, where it has, like, the procession of, like, ghoulies at the end. The it's, procession of ghoulies is yeah. quite impressive <laughs> Yeah, uh, for um, 1967, Yeah, I would say, overall, just on a practical effects level. Yes, yeah, they're quite creepy. Yeah, I think that that, you know, is far beyond in terms of, like, the, you know, like, the aesthetic, like, grotesquerie and, like, excess uh, that... Uh, is, you know, in the story, the kind of surreal element. Like, the idea of, like, a human-sized nose walking around and, like, getting, you know, mistaken for, like, a person <laughs> is, like, not something that Poe would, like, you know, is, is like, in the stories of Poe uh, necessarily. Like, I mean, it almost is much more like 
uh, Hoffman, who gets compared, I think, or even suggested as a possible influence on Goggle um, a lot mm, of the time. Yeah. Uh, like the weird shit of like uh, the Sandman story we mentioned in, in episode one. Oh yeah, right? the Sandman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, oh, that's right. That was Hoffman. He was the yeah. Sandman guy. Oh right, right, yeah, right. yeah. Going back to yeah. God, what was that? Our was that our first episode? It is our very first that? episode. Yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah. I just randomly uh, told like a really poor rendition of of the story, but everyone should read Sandman because <laughs> it's very interesting and it's famous because like Freud wrote about it in his essay, The Uncanny which That's you know, right. is like his formulation of the concept of the uncanny and like his explanation of it, which really does deal with like his sort of psychoanalytic explanation for the belief in ghosts or things like that, which is very, you know, very normative now and very, you know, that appealed to people a lot. And people have really adopted that as like this idea that like we've evolved past these things, but like somehow there's certain moments where like there's a return of the repressed or something. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, we get the sense like, Oh no, like, but maybe it is true. But in the same way, you know, because of the maybe aesthetic similarity between Hoffman and Goggle, there has been a lot of just in reading about, uh, you know, like sort of academic treatments of V for this episode. Uh, I did encounter a lot of them that were like psychoanalytic and like about like castration fear or whatever. Yeah. yeah sexual I mean, guilt. And yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think there's like elements of that there. Like you can kind of read that into it and like we'll talk about the parts of it, I guess, as we just kind of go through the story, maybe the the parts of it that like people have have latched onto in, in that way. But I think that there's like also like a, you know, a less kind of uh, reductive reading of, of some of the stuff, especially like the ending, but yeah. yeah. Anyway, so yeah, maybe well, we should talk about what the story is about and what the, like what the sort of general like architecture of both the, sh- the sort of novella and the film are, uh, for sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so that, yeah. do we want to start talking cause they are, they're, they're mostly quite similar, right? The yeah. short story and the 1960s. They're mostly film. very similar. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, maybe we could just start talking about, start walking through the film itself, mm-hmm. and yeah. kind of uh, the plot just, of the just film t- and the plot mm-hmm. of the story are pretty much exactly the same. They're like you know exactly. some stuff is like cut out, but yeah. So this came out in, in 1967, just so people yeah. know. And mm-hmm. uh, I mean, very I think right before uh, Rosemary's Baby, another big uh, horror splash from a Eastern European director. Yeah, you know, made a big deal in the West, but mm-hmm. this is really more like fearless vampire uh, killers or something in terms yeah. of it's like a historical setting. So right, it takes right, place right. in like yeah, yeah, like the early eighteen uh, hundreds, and it opens with a narration, like you said, kind of setting it up as like an old folk tale. Yeah, right. Yeah, and then, I think that like this, you know, the I think it's the same one from the story. So yeah, this is like kind of the crux. Like, what is V? What is V? <laughs> good question it's like yeah it's a great mystery and like you know this is like an example of you know you got to give it up to goggle uh because it is like very compelling and yet like no like there doesn't really seem to be so what he says is the v is a monstrous creation of popular fancy it is a name which the inhabitants of little russia eh, uh, eh, (laughs) give to the king of the gnomes whose eyelashes reach the ground the following story is a specimen of such folklore I have made no alterations, but reproduce it in the same simple form in which I have heard it. That's what he says. But like people have been like, what? Like V, like the like the king of the gnomes. And like no one is really able or has been able, as far as I could tell, to like mm-hmm. actually find a uh, a V in Ukrainian or Russian folklore. That exactly. people have found like things kind of like that, like the idea of the eyelashes, blah, 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 like some parallels, like in 
you know, because there was like a craze for folklore like around this time, like even the Brothers Grimm and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You know, so there were like stories of folk tales being published, and yeah, we have some but, of similar elements, but the yeah. the name V itself is like kind of a mystery, and like what he says doesn't seem to be like True. you know, uh, and certainly not I, like a wide a popular fancy. No, uh, and I yeah. also read that in Ukrainian folkloric kind of traditions that they don't in Ukraine they really don't have kind of a history of like gnomes as part yeah. of their like you know little ghouly creatures like that yeah that kind I of came. i don't know where gnomes first came. i guess greeks <laughs> like yeah they don't come from greeks they're gay well, i guess almost. there's a connection there yeah. with like cyrillic and like orthodoxy and stuff like that maybe but like not yeah, so much i'm trying much, to look up like, right now what word uh goggle actually uses for gnomes maybe he just writes like gnomes phonetically I'm not sure what the like Russian word for gnomes is. I assume that it is gnomes because everyone is so universally sure that that's what he meant. And like and that the, is a good point Greek to say that there are it. gnomes. Yeah. The Greek origin is. It's yeah, it's uh, gnome. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> like the, yeah, yeah. But gnome. I guess gnomes aren't a big deal uh, in Ukrainian folklore. Uh, no. You know, according to a lot of exactly. people. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it kind of, so it has, it almost has a kind of like Lovecraftian vibe of like this strange figure that is like somewhat familiar to other things that have been uh, imagined before, but it's just like, it's almost like indescribable to some extent. Like you have to see V to understand (laughs) what the fuck V is. Yeah, true. Uh, and you still don't really understand it. It's a kind of a horrifying, exactly. and like, like overwhelming v vision. Itself is like almost like ancillary to the actual events of the story, but yeah. like it, yeah. I mean, it's very crucial, but at the same time, it's just like this weird, horrific thing that's like, yeah, kind of more or less out of nowhere. <laughs> like anyway, yeah. Exactly. Um, Anyways, so uh, one thing yeah. I think is interesting because I don't know if this is uh, the I looked through the beginning of um of Goggle's story and I don't know if this part was necessarily in uh, the opening of the story but it's in the opening of the movie so Mm -hmm. after this like brief narration and the credits it cuts to like a monastery you know Mm -hmm. somewhere in Ukraine and there's kind of like a chaotic sort of wild opening scene with all these monks that are I thought this was sus and kind of interesting like the first thing you see is all these monks like kind of like having a lot of fun like they're doing some kind of prankish thing they're all congregated outside yeah. of this big church and they, they they're all crowded around a goat and they're <laughs> holding up like a bible to the goat and it seemingly like trying like jokingly trying to get the goat to like read the bible hmm. yeah right? i'm not sure if that is in the original yeah it's a. Uh... Yeah, it is a weird uh, opening, I guess. I mean, basically the setup is like similar where like they're going on spring break. But yeah, I'm not sure if they. Yeah, I guess that's just like their idea of. I mean, it kind of makes sense. But it's got a a little it's got a little sacrilegious vibe, doesn't it? Yeah, for sure. I I mean, I think that the even in the original, like the I mean, the whole issue is like uh, whether uh, they're like, you know, a, a, a kind of a pivotal idea is like the. Uh, religious faith of of the main character like how sincere he is and like the you know the power of uh religious ritual and things like that and yeah i think that like the yeah the kind of like venality of uh the religious institutions i mean Mm -hmm. goggle did feel that even though he loved the orthodox church he did feel that like it needed to 
like defend itself and like it needed to prove that it uh you know it, like it wasn't uh, worldly in the way that like roman catholics you know he he felt them to be um mm-hmm. so in in many ways so uh i mean i definitely you can see that kind of same critique i mean like there is you know he does sort of uh like at one point there's that line that I think is in the movie and in the story where someone says like, you must've lived the life of a saint. And he was like, no, like I haven't lived the life <laughs> of a saint. Like I've like fucked around with like the, like the baker's wife or something or the butcher's wife. What does he say? Yeah. The butcher's like, wife. Yeah. He said yeah. that he was like sleeping with the butcher's wife. Um, yeah. I forget during something. It's kind of like a startling confession. And, and then in that yeah. same scene, he like lies, but, uh, but right. that's Holy, later, like I on mean, Holy Thursday, I went to like, you know, the baker's wife or something. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that's in the story and the movie is that you get kind of like a satirical, uh, portrayal of these seminarians and these holy men. Yeah. And they're like kids basically. And yeah, they're like college students kind of, and they're sort of on spring break at the beginning. Uh, Yeah. So they're traveling through Ukraine and they kind of get lost in like a dark, misty forest and they're hungry and they and also like want to find some place where they can post up and like drink vodka because they're all about getting yeah. getting shwasty. Mm-hmm. And they eventually they decide to wander through this forest and they finally come to a little farmhouse and you know, they they make a big ruckus and like beg whoever's there to like come out. And this old lady, you know, comes out and says that she already has lodgers and she can't help them. And they kind of beg her and say, well, we'll reward you later. And like, you'll be rewarded by God if you help us. Like, please, like just saying whatever they can. And eventually she kind of relents and is like, "Okay," but she says you all have to sleep in separate areas. And they're like, "Okay, whatever. And she picks one of them to like come inside and like sleep with her. And, yeah. but that's not, that's not our main seminarian. Um, yeah. Coma Brutus or Coma yeah. Brut, right? Right. It's yes. a, a different Coma. one. Yeah. yeah so Coma like is like our stable with the animals. Yeah. That's right. He's in the stable with the animals. So they all go to sleep on this farm and then he gets woken up in the middle of the night, right? By the old lady. Yeah. It's a very, and this is a very weird part. And, you know, this kind of, kind of brings up the whole, like, goat reading the Bible issue, like the sort of, like, humanity, animality thing, which I feel like is a theme, maybe not as heavily in, like, the goggles, like, work, but I feel like in Russian film and literature generally, one of the, like, other movies that you put in the work flowy as, like, another example of, like, Soviet horror was that movie. People call it Day of Wrath. Uh, I think it's, like... Uh, Den Geneva or something, the 1985 movie, which is about like hyper intelligent bears, kind of, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and another, I think another movie that came out uh, from Poland, like around the 70s, was uh, Loki's. Mm-hmm. I think there was even an earlier adaptation of that, which is based on like a kind of werewolf story almost by what was the name of the guy? Uh, Prosper Merime. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, anyway, so. And even like there's even more, I feel like it was even more of a werewolf story in Day of Wrath. Like the movie itself was even more werewolfy than the actual 
story that it was based on. This yeah, it actually has yeah. to do with like geneticists, like yeah, like their chimeras. actual story uh, is like yeah, chimera bears that are like as smart as humans, but they have like no human morality. They're basically That's dog like the men, honestly. Yeah, they're basically they're dog, th- a new race of bear-like creatures, but with human intellect, uh, called otarks. But unlike people, <laughs> yeah. otarks have no emotion, no emotions or universal morals. They catch people and carry out their own experiments on them, which leads the inhabitants of the villages surrounding the forest being afraid of them. No. Yeah. The wow. movie that came out in 1985 doesn't seem like it stuck that closely to the original story. Like, cause I mean, I just like flipped around through it. I was like, cause you know, the story is interesting. And I was like, I wonder how they like represented these like talking, like evil bears. Like, you know, I was interested to see it, but it seems like they aren't really in it. Like the, you know, uh, but in the last scene, spoil alert for the movie day of wrath. Like again, I didn't see, I couldn't get it with subtitles. So I could only get like a vague sense of what was going on, but the main character is like in this big and it's set actually like in a western country um huh. and the main oh, well, character of course, in this, nazi nazi eugenicist or at least the uh yeah it seems like the movie is but so he's like in this big sort of like chamber like you know doing some kind of like political speech and like some <laughs> official is like speaking and then like someone hands him a briefcase and then he like pulls out a gun and just like blasts this politician and then he like starts <laughs> roaring like a bear <laughs> and he like falls <laughs> over and then like he rips like his face off like you know it, like in the miniseries uh v well not v this yeah, movie yeah, but just v, the letter you v. know yeah v, mm-hmm. they, like 80s like and underneath is like all this fur and stuff like he was a bear like in a human suit which is not an element of the original story so i don't know what they were doing with that but anyway my point is Trying that like this whole out. yeah this whole issue of like humanity like animality like werewolfism uh, like you know that's like a big focus in i guess uh i feel like a russian uh what you might call like uh horror or like gothic romantic literature like that deals with these sort of like folk superstitious topics you know russian mm-hmm. dracularity you know maybe has like a very um werewolfy aspect but yeah this sort of the sort of animal element comes in in this scene that you're just talking about where she comes and confronts him like in the stable where he's hanging out and in the yeah. film you know he's like being harassed by like all the pigs and horses and stuff and like yeah, yeah yeah and then she kind of like kind of casts a spell or like seduces him right yeah sort of she like you know stares at him like a lot and he like you know doesn't know what's going on he's like trying yeah it seems like she's trying to seduce him and he even rebuffs her in the movie he's like mm-hmm. i don't i'm not gonna you know give up my virtue for you because she's like a hideous old crone like literally yeah you yeah. know she looks like your stereotypical like Vedma or whatever, or like which who is know, also but. interestingly played by a male actor. Uh, huh? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I yeah. See which that. you know, yeah. a lot of like Westerners are like they're queering Soviets. Yeah, yeah. like queer Soviet <laughs> cinema. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but right. uh, but yeah. So there, there's that element. But then somehow it ends up like the witch ends up kind of crawling onto his back, almost yeah, like to ride him. Back. Right. She jumps yeah. on his back. She and then does bef- ride him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She does. She rides him. So, I mean, there, there's obvi- a lot of people have looked into this particular sequence as like very metaphorically, like sexually charged and stuff yeah. where this witch who is being played by a man is riding the young seminarian. And then he sort of realizes at a certain point that he's flying over the countryside on the witch's broom with like the witch on top of him yeah she's like using the broom to like whip him and he's like like a flying horse kind of and i think they even use like horse sound effects in the movie right like 
you know, yeah, it's a very trippy green screen sequence yeah. um, mm -hmm. where then he's like, oh, my God, you're a witch. Like, God, protect me. Yeah. Put me down and stuff. And they eventually land. And then he just like he totally freaks out um, and he grabs the, the witch's broom and just starts like beating the witch to death. But then yeah. after a moment, he stops and realizes that the witch has transformed into this like beautiful young woman. Yeah. And he stops right away, but I guess she's been like seriously, <clears throat> seriously beaten by him. And so he runs off and I guess he, he ends up, you know, going back to his seminary. And then yeah. this is where his it really like his spiral, uh, poor, poor coma gets ensnared in this game because he gets back to the seminary and his kind of like sleazy, corrupt uh, priest, you know, that is like sort of his boss uh, tells him that there is a wealthy Cossack nearby who is like sent for somebody to come read, like do the, I don't know, the death vigil prayers for his daughter who has been like beaten and ravaged and is mm -hmm. like on death's door. And the messengers that came specifically asked for seminarian coma brute yeah. to come do it. And nobody but him. And of course, like he's, he realizes right away like what this is and it's like uh like no i don't think i should do it and but because i think like the messengers brought like honey and like uh i don't know vodka or something <laughs> they brought like gifts to yeah. the to the priests they're like shut the fuck up like you're yeah going. <laughs> yeah like, exactly right you know? yeah and so he's like oh brother and yeah, so he going. goes to this like cossack little cossack you know village and then i guess by the time he gets there the the, the young woman has died so yeah. she's already dead when he gets there. And, you know, he right. gets she's, told, you know, her father is like, she called specifically for you. Like, how did you know her? That's a very weird part where he like asks him, you know, who like all about him? Like, who's your father? Who's your mother? And he like doesn't know at all. Right. Like it's uh, implied that he's an orphan. Yeah. The old Cossack basically asks him like this is, you know, pretty much word for word from the story where he asks him, who are you and where from and of what estate, good man? The chief said, neither kindly nor sternly. Uh, I'm the philosopher, Homa Brute, a student. And who was your father? I don't know, noble sir. And your mother? I don't know my mother either. Reasonably considering, of course, there was a mother. But who she was and where from and when she lived, by God, your honor, I don't know. The chief paused and seemed to sit pondering for a moment. And how did she become acquainted with my daughter? And he says, I didn't become acquainted, noble sir. By God, I didn't. I've never had any dealings with young ladies in all my born days. Deuce take them, not to say something improper. Uh, then why was it none other than you, precisely, that she appointed to read? You know, so what has been asked to do is like basically do her last rites like over three days, like in yeah. a spooky church. Yeah, but he says, God knows how to explain that. It's a known fact that masters sometimes want something that even the most literate man can't figure out. As the saying goes hop faster, mind the master. So he's like talking about, you know, basically the, you know, the Cossack guy himself, like the the noble sort of. Yeah, I don't really know too much about like Cossack social structure, but you know, this guy's like a estate holder pretty much. Yeah, um, I had meant to go look it up because the Cossacks are like so, they're, yeah. they're so specific and they usually get invoked. They like, they pop up throughout history. I believe they were very uh, anti-Soviet and were very pro-white Russian during, yeah. uh, you know, uh, 
post 1917. According to Wikipedia, Joseph Stalin repressed many Cossack traditions uh, oh, after no. the war. This is interesting. Cohesive Cossack based units were organized and fought for both Germany and the Soviet Union during World War II. So, hmm. yeah. Right, yeah. Well. yeah. So, they, I mean, they, they heavily populated. They were semi nomadic and semi militarized people that I think, I think their big thing was like the czar almost like they they were almost like the like Ahmad Sila, like Chechens of their day mm -hmm. in yeah. that like when Putin could like call upon them like to go to battle for them and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. They and were like Turkish, they were Orthodox. Right? Or maybe originally. Yeah, they were Orthodox. What, but they were yeah. Orthodox. Unlike the, the Tatars who were Muslim. Yes. Right. Um, but the, I believe the, the yeah. actually the Cossacks, I believe, were originally Turkic who then yeah, became exactly. like uh, kind of Slavified and Orthodox, yeah. but had kind of their own They're like culture. the steppe people of Ukraine. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So, I mean, there's obviously, yeah, there's a lot, a lot of subtext yeah. going on there. And this is like a wealthy Cossack who is definitely yeah. um, that, kind of a yeah. sinister individual. And as you mentioned, that was kind of like the uh, what I mean, in addition to Goggle being like a national like hero and, you know, a beloved writer and the fact that it was like, you know, uh, 1967 by this point. So the sort of like you know, there was a little bit of it was a bit relaxed in terms of like, you know, not wanting to represent some of these topics or like, you know, have sort of religious characters or things like that. But, you know, a, 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 as you said, like a, an aspect that made it. Uh, an appealing project I, was that it was sort of a representation of the Cossacks, uh, which was something that, you know, there was a lot of interest in at the time, the sort of portrayal yeah, yeah. of, of them uh, in a historical way. But uh, yeah, but anyway, this in that scene comes like, you know, one of the most intriguing lines, which is if you'd only lived one minute longer. So the chief sadly you know, talking to his daughter, I surely have learned everything. Don't let anybody read over me, Daddy, but send to the Kiev Seminary at once and bring the student coma brute. Let him pray three nights for my sinful soul. He knows. But what he knows, I didn't hear. She, dear soul, could only say that, and then she died. Surely, good man, you must be known for your holy life and God-pleasing deeds, and maybe she heard about you. And that's, you know, when he has that line, which is like, you know, I just was calling on the baker's wife on Holy Thursday. You know, I haven't led a holy yeah. life. Um, yeah. but you know, the line of like, he knows, like, what does he know? Like that he, like, she was a witch. Like, seems like that's the opinion of the Cossacks in the town that she was like, what is her relationship to this old woman? Like, how was she co-identical with that? Yeah. You know, well, it's he all very he, mysterious. Yeah. He also mentions a kind of a story about a huntsman who fell in love with this young woman and how when she came into the stable and asked his help to get on her horse, he said he would like it more if she rode on his back and then took yeah. her on his back and ran off with her, reminding Coma of his encounter. Yes. You know, basically, uh, yeah, so the, the men telling the tale uh, suspect the girl was a witch and basically, yeah. So yeah, he, like, goes and drinks with all the Cossacks and they tell him about how... You know, she did all this, like, witchly stuff. There's one story that, like, isn't uh, in the movie, but, yeah, the one you said about, you know, how she wrote on this guy's back, you know, which was very sort of similar to what he experienced. You know, they talk uh, about another guy, uh, uh, Mitsika, uh, Mikita, Mikita. And, you know, he was, like, a great huntsman, but, you know, then she fell in love with him. I'm sorry, uh, he fell in love with her, and he became all soft. Um... You know, like, uh, she touched, like, his leg on him. And, yeah, I think she was, like, uh, 
The young miss lifted up her leg, and when he saw her bare leg, white and plump, the charm, he says, just stunned him. He bent his back to Tom Fool, grabbed her bare legs with both hands, and went galloping like a horse all over the fields. And he couldn't tell anything about where they rode, uh, only he came back alive. And after uh, that, he got all wasted, like a chip of wood. And once he came to the stable, instead of him, there was just a heap of ashes and an empty bucket lying there. He burned up, burned up of his own self. And what a huntsman he was. You won't find another like him in the whole world. <laughs> and there was another guy, uh, and they have, like, very, you know, they're, they're all talking about, like, how Cossacks aren't afraid of everything. Yeah, you know, that, like, that's like a common yeah. thing he keeps repeating to himself yeah, uh, once exactly, it gets right. more extreme, is that, like, a Cossack is afraid of nothing, you know? Yeah, and right. Also, yeah. yeah, his drinking, even before he gets to the, the Cossack father, he's, like, already spent a night getting shit-faced with all these Cossacks. And basically, like, drunkenness is kind of, like, a huge motif throughout this where he just gets progressively more and more shit-faced, like, to kind of steal himself and overcome his fear, but... Yeah, exactly. Um, doesn't work. It does not. Yeah, right. Yeah, the, they also tell the story of uh, Shep uh, Shepchika. I think they. This is not in the film. Uh, the other one is like in a sort of reduced form, but this is you know an even more sinister witch story. You know, they this person had like a young baby, right? Uh, so uh, Shepchika lay there, and then she heard a dog scratching against the door and howling so loud you just wanted to flee the house. She got frightened. For women are such foolish folk that you can stick your tongue out at her behind the door at night, and she'd have her heart in her mouth. Um, yeah. Anyway, anyhow, she thinks, why don't I go and hit the cursed dog in the snout? Maybe it'll stop howling. And taking her poker, she went to open the door. As soon as it was slightly open, the dog darted between her legs and went straight for the baby's cradle. Uh, Shepchika uh, saw that it was no longer a dog, but the young miss. Uh, and if it had been the young miss, I guess, uh, what, what do they call it? Like, uh, well, anyway, I'll figure it out later. Uh, the young miss looking the way she knew her, it would have been nothing. But there was one thing in circumstance. Uh, that she was all blue and her eyes were burning like coals. She grabbed the baby, bit its throat, and began drinking its blood. Uh, Shepchika only cried out, Ah, evil thing, and fled. But she saw that the front doors were locked. She ran to the attic. The foolish woman sat there trembling. And uh, then she saw that the young miss was coming to the attic. She fell on the foolish woman and started biting her. It was morning before Sheptun got his wife out of there, blue and bitten all over. And the next day the foolish woman died. That's what arrangements and temptations can happen. Though she's the master's progeny, all the same, a witch is a witch. So, yeah, they just keep telling, and the material about the witch in this translation uh, became inexhaustible. So, basically, all the Cossacks, you know, who, like, work on this guy's estate agree that she was a witch. Yeah, absolutely. So and you okay, see there so kind of the werewolfery that, like, is, you know, there's even kind of a werewolf story about her. She came, like, a wolf form, very similar to the... Uh, Loki's story, actually. Uh, the yeah, al- also something I, I remembered, I think from that first night where Coma is uh, drinking with all the Cossacks, I think he gets so shit-faced that there's like a weird sequence where he sees three of like one of these Cossacks like coming at, there's like three doors in front of him and mm-hmm. the same Cossack comes out of each door subsequently and they're all kind of talking. It's an interesting kind yeah. of like superimposition right. special effect of uh, basically, yeah, like a kind of, yeah, these like three different versions of uh, this Cossack guy, like talking to him and he's like reeling around. But I guess that's also something I didn't notice this, but I read afterwards that the that three and like, you know, groupings of three are prevalent throughout the entire movie. 
yeah, in terms well, of the I symbolism. Yeah, I mean, the rule of three, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, in the storyline, yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, but uh, the, almost on, like, a mystical level. Like, there's, like, a mystical recursion of threes, like, constantly throughout the whole thing. Mm, and that's yeah, one example. Yeah, I didn't example. notice that either. Yeah, um, so things for, almost get know, a little, a little trippy. But mm, yeah. <laughs> then going back to meeting with the Cossack father, you know, this is pretty much the 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 main setup of uh, the story here is he has to do you know pray for the soul of this woman for three nights in the church alone and he will get a great reward if he does this he'll be paid a lot of gold but if he doesn't he implies there will be grave physical punishment so he's sort of almost like held hostage by this like rich cossack and he has yeah, to do Yeah, pretty it. much. It gets even worse later because, like, well, we'll talk about yeah, it later on. Well, but, yeah. Yeah, it, um, it gets pretty brutal. Um, yeah. yeah, the threats uh, escalate. Yeah, <laughs> yes. He's not about to let him leave. He's got to do it. No, um, he's got to do it. So Yeah, he's uh, also bribing him, you know. He's like, I'll give you a bunch of gold. But Yeah, yeah so once um, again, you see kind of the theme of, like, a little bit of, like, corruption, like, yeah. around the uh, the performance of rights and spirituality yeah. and stuff. I mean, and part like, of what's so, yeah, I mean, part of what's so interesting about this story is that, like, yeah, I mean, Homa, he's not, like, uh, you know, he definitely hasn't lived a holy life. He's not, like, a great guy, necessarily. I mean, in a way, you could say that he's, like, a typical, like, loudish, like, young man. But what he did, it's weird, because, like, there, you know, there's, like, a sort of sense of guilt. I mean, he wants to conceal it, obviously, but at the same time, like, it's weird. Like, it's, it's, it's like, what, what he experienced was so bizarre that, like, I almost feel like, I mean, maybe he shouldn't have flipped out and Are started being that witch to death. Are did nothing wrong? Uh, I'm not saying he did nothing <laughs> wrong. Like, he maybe shouldn't have, like, beaten that witch to death. But, like, why did that witch start riding him like a horse? I guess maybe it's supposed True. to be metaphorical, like, you know, like, he was repulsed. Maybe, maybe, like, there's, like, an erotic element where, like, there's, you know, it was, like, an intimate encounter in some like way. Like, he had and, sex like, with he this... Was, uh, but she witch. did like turn into a beautiful woman so like you know if he was repulsed by her to the point yeah like so yeah she didn't yeah. turn into a beautiful woman before she started yeah exactly it's him. not like she your was standard still scary kind of like witch pop being... culture thing yeah where mm. or like you know uh yeah she seems beautiful at first and then she turns out to be a hideous old hag it's the opposite uh yeah no, he ends up basically almost getting like like supernaturally like raped by her yeah. And then only when he beats her to death does he realize that she's a beautiful young woman, which is yeah. kind of funny because like he immediately stops just by seeing that she's like really hot. <laughs> like, yeah. You know what I mean? Like if, if like like that, that seemed to be the main reason is like, oh, wait, oh, oh, she fine. Like, yeah. oh, <laughs> fuck. Like I made a mistake here. It was less out of a sense of like, oh, it's wrong of me to be like beating this person. Yeah, so I'd say you could make a self-defense argument. Uh, you kind of could. Yeah. Like what uh, the story uh, has is, you know, it's actually even more explicit in a way. Like, again, this is in translation, but I think you can kind of get the idea. He sees actually while flying. This is not in the film. But he sees while flying like a water nymph uh, underneath, like, you know, a sexy nymph while he's flying. But anyway, so after that, he asks, is he seeing it or is he not? Is he awake or asleep? But what now? Wind or music bringing, ringing and whirling and approaching and piercing the soul with some unbearable trill. 
What is it, thought the philosopher Kalma Brute, looking down as he raced on top of speed. Sweat streamed from him. He felt a demonically sweet feeling. He felt some piercing, some languidly terrible pleasure. It often seemed to him as if his heart were no longer there at all, and in fear he would clutch at it with his hand. Exhausted, bewildered, he began to recall all the prayers he ever knew. He ran through all the exorcisms against spirits, and suddenly felt some relief. He felt his step beginning to become lazier. The witch held somehow more weakly to his back. Thick grass touched him, and he no longer saw anything extraordinary in it. The bright crescent shone in the sky. All right, then, thought the philosopher Coma, and he began saying exorcisms almost aloud. Finally, quick as lightning, he jumped from under the old woman and in his turn leaped on her back. With her small, uh, quick step, the old woman ran so fast the rider could hardly catch his breath. The earth just flashed beneath him. Everything was clear in the moonlight, though the moon was not full. The valleys were smooth, but owing to the speed, everything flashed vaguely and confusedly in his eyes. He snatched up a billet lying in the road and started beating the old woman as hard as he could with it. She let out wild screams. First they were angry and threatening, then they turned weaker, more pleasant, pure than soft, barely ringing, like fine silver bells penetrating his soul. A thought flashed inadvertently in his head. Is this really an old woman? Oh, I can't take it anymore, she said in exhaustion and fell to the ground. He got to his feet and looked into her eyes. Dawn was breaking, and the golden domes of the Kievan churches shone the distance. Before him lay a beauty with a disheveled, luxurious braid and long, pointy eyelashes. Insensibly, she spread her bare white arms and moaned, looking up with tear-filled eyes. Yeah. So then he felt wow. pity. He trembled like a leaf on a tree, etc. But I mean, yeah. even the right, the original writing of that, I think the movie actually captures the ambiguity quite well because it sounds yeah, like sure. it, it almost becomes this like sexual thing, like as she transforms. Yes. Like in into the younger woman. For sure, it, yeah. It's like the the violence is somehow transmuted into like eroticism. Yes, or so, yeah, something like that. Yeah, and it all feels uh, very metaphorical. Like she's moaning as he's like hitting yeah. her with the and billet. He jumps on her back. She's running. Like first she's and on top he of him. Feel, then he's he, on top. He feels like, pierced. You know, it's yeah. almost like he's being like penetrated. Yeah, he feels like a demonically sweet pleasure. Yeah, it definitely seems sexual, on. and I mean that is consistent with like a lot of ideas about like night rides of like witches you know whether they go to sabbaths and have sex there or like the idea of like the old hag who would like come and press down on your chest you know there's kind of like a sexual mm. element to that as well um you know or sexual connotation the idea that like they would be sort of draining sexual energy or that there would be some kind of sexual relationship succubi with these, like, and incubi. visitors yeah succubi and incubi right which does come up uh later yeah on right by name Mm-hmm. yeah but anyway so that's you know what happened to him at that point but uh yeah so he has to go to the spooky church um yeah. which is Should we talk about the first night yeah i mean in the movie like the church is like i think really well rendered that's like one of the strongest things about it i think is like the spookiness of the church like you don't i feel like the story it doesn't linger so much on like these images, like these uh, icons, like all around, like of Jesus and his face. They're very like, you know, like, uh, like threatening. yeah, they're like judging him. Yeah, <laughs> like Jesus. You know, the look like, on Jesus's face and these old icons is he's yeah. not pleased. Right, he's, he's pleased almost like as scary as anything is like Jesus's like stern like glare at the sky uh-huh. as he's like in this church, yeah. you know. And that is related to what the reason why I was talking about it is like kind of like yeah, like what is you know there's a sense that he's guilty. But, like, you know, he kind of has a case here, like, in a way. Like, it's unclear because, like, it almost seems like, yeah, as you said, like, uh, metaphorized or allegorized. They're, like, some kind of, like, you know, uh, again, you can see how, like, these types of 
stories like Hoffman stories are so attractive to like a Freudian reading because like it does mm-hmm. seem like you know there's something different happening under the surface but he definitely has a sense of guilt for sure and he feels yeah. like he's responsible for killing her even though he swore to God that he didn't know her he also Although, yeah he straight up lies he said I like yeah. I swear to God like I <laughs> you know I swear by eternal soul yeah. to God that like I'd never met her before and you can almost see like he you almost see I was almost expecting him to like flinch or you said like may God strike me down if you yeah. know I'm telling the truth and then he you almost expect him to like look up for like a thunderbolt or something like he looks so kind of like tense and nervous like when he says that because he realizes he just like invoke the name of God to like straight up lie to this guy. And at the same time, it's understandable because this is like a scary, wealthy Cossack who Mm -hmm. would probably like torture him to death if he found out that this guy beat his son, regardless of whether or not she was a witch. So he's in a very like tough situation and plagued by, I think, yes, a lot of subconscious guilt. Yeah. And uh, in the story, yeah, in the movie, it's even more explicit because it's actually different in that, in the movie, he doesn't recognize her as... Uh, sorry, in the story, he doesn't recognize her as the witch until after he's sworn. I feel like he might swear again afterwards. Uh, I'm not sure. But in the movie, yeah, he, like, just straight up sees her and is like, damn. And then he straight up says that thing about, like, yeah, may lightning strike me down. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, without, you know, a second thought. So he has to go to the spooky church, yeah. And the first night, you know, the first thing, which is, like, straight out of the, of the story, is that he sees her kind of, like, start to cry, like, though she's dead. And she, mm-hmm. like, weeps, like, tears of blood. Yeah, and there's a bunch of cats, like, scurrying around the floor. Yes, and stuff like right. Weird things like that. And they also lock him in every night. That's the thing. He has to be yeah. locked in. And It's uh, really that kind of classic uh, <laughs> setup or scenario of, like, having to spend a night in, like, a haunted house. Or, well, in this case, it's, like, a house with, like, a witch in it. Um, it is, yeah. Because I guess yeah, when he when he starts... murdered. Like he sets up his whole thing and starts reciting his prayers and then he pauses to sniff some tobacco and but then like he's like doing snuff and then he sneezes. The girl opens her eyes and climbs out of the coffin and is like blind, but like wandering around the church, like looking for him. And so he does something that he ends up doing each time, which is he he sketches out like a sacred circle of chalk around his little podium. And that kind of like keeps the bad vibes out. So he just keeps praying and the girl is like pantomime where she's like tapping on like, you know, an invisible barrier um, (laughs) that like, you know, the, the sort of sacred circle is keeping her out. Yeah. And then so it's it's very sus. It's very stressful, but she can't get to him. And then finally, the rooster crows at dawn. The girl goes yeah. back in her coffin and all the candles extinguish. Right. So, you know, it's it's not great, but uh, at least not too bad. So, you know, he kind of tries to play it down as like not a big deal. So everyone asks him what happened. It, it does seem like they all know, which is kind of fucked up. Like, yeah, they definitely they all totally know. know she's like a they, witch. Well, they're all in agreement that she's a witch and they definitely uh-huh. know like what's up, but they will not let him leave. No, they won't. Um, no, uh, exactly. Yeah. So he tells them like nothing much happened, just some noises. Um, yeah. And then for the second night, he gets a really, really shit face to like summon the <laughs> right. courage basically to go back. Yeah. And eventually they kind and of he's like, he's also are, like doing uh, snuff too. Like yeah, he's doing yeah. a lot of snuff. And eventually they kind of like herd him into the, like, all right, like, yeah. all right, philosopher, time to go. <laughs> right, and they yeah. throw him in there. And this time shit gets like, starts to get crazier. So like a bunch of birds 
fly out from the coffin, but then they lock him in and he can't escape. He goes to the podium uh, and then a bird flies out of his prayer book. So he draws another sacred circle. And then the coffin, like, this is an interesting effect to use, but, like, the coffin rises in the air and starts, like, banging against the invisible (laughs) wall. (laughs) Like, boom, boom, boom. Like, over and over, just like this sus coffin just, like, floating around. Yes. And he freaks out. He freaks out, calls out for God to protect him. Yeah, it's like trying to battering ram through, like, the invisible wall. (laughs) Yes. Uh, with the coffin itself, yes. Um, yeah, and then the cover falls off the coffin. The girl gets out, and she's still blind and, like, can't get to him, uh, but starts calling out his name. And then finally, you know, I, th- I think he throws his shoe at it, and, like, then finally the rooster crows, and, like, everyone opens the doors, and, and he's, like, lying, like, at the yeah. foot of the podium, like, disheveled, like, with one shoe on. <laughs> like, yeah. Just absolutely, uh, yeah. So then he starts to almost, like, lose it after the second night. Yeah, he gets, like, really nuts. It's The movie representation of it is, like, really great because he just is, like, dancing. Oh, yeah. Oh, the other thing that happens is, like, before the, right as the rooster crows, the girl basically places a curse on Coma to turn his hair white and render him blind. But then his hair turns gray and he doesn't go blind, which yeah. is like, OK, maybe he's happy that he's not blind. I don't know. Right. But yeah, he goes out. They like lead him out and he's with all the Cossacks and he demands music and starts dancing. And like somebody plays a flute and he takes off his hat and everyone's like, whoa, his hair is gray. He also says, like, I don't want to pray. I don't want to do the third night. And he goes he goes to coma or no, he goes to the Cossack father yeah. And like pleads with him basically to be like, let me go. I don't want to yes. do the third night. This yeah. is so sus. He's like, nope, you're doing it. Uh, yeah. And if you yeah. don't, we're going to flog you. And he's like, we've gotten like exceedingly good at flogging. Cossacks he gives a pretty are. creepy monologue about <laughs> yeah. how good his Cossacks are at, at, basically whipping people yeah. and how he, he he like he gets them warmed up and then gives them like a, a a quart of vodka each and then like really lets them like let loose and he says that like if you don't do the third night i will give you a thousand lashes but i will give you a thousand pieces of gold if you succeed so yeah, yeah which Coma is like does this guy like knows what's up yeah you kind of like absolutely you know, it's your classic like kind of like very ominous situation and honestly just to mention for a second like the aesthetics of uh this film which i think are quite great i think yeah i think the version on shutter which i'm outraged by uh only has english dubbing i can't believe that like i feel like yeah i'm I'm surprised well shutter if you're listening uh please like have russian version i don't fucking russian back i feel like a lot of their stuff does have the subtitle version but well anyway. exactly yeah i i think it's some i wonder if they did that like in the last few months to be like russian language outlaw <laughs> like or <laughs> I, something I mean, like that i doubt it but i mean Probably it might just not. be that that was like what they were able to license like that version but yeah yeah know. well i've noticed other films too like italian films have yeah. just the english dubbing oh, which right, I think is yeah, fucking whack and they should I stop guess black it. sunday yeah mm-hmm. i feel like yeah. yeah i definitely have seen maybe it was on netflix i definitely watched black sunday yeah um, at some point in italian but yeah, like I watched it last year. night. It, it's yeah. uh, also kind of uh, pretty, yeah. pretty good. It's supposed um, to be like loosely based on the goggle story, or at least yeah, like that. But was like very loosely, idea. as I very found loosely, out. yeah, 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 yeah. But I think the, the the aesthetics of this movie are pretty on point. And actually, I mean, I couldn't help but like think like 
oh, this is like A24, like Ari Aster vibes, basically. Yeah. Like the way mm-hmm. this is shot, like the framing of like using the village was very much like Midsummer, I think, in a lot yeah, of ways. Yeah, for sure. Um, it has that uh, like folk horror element to it. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. It's like this community that secretly is like prepping you to be sacrificed. <laughs> yeah. Basically. <laughs> and everyone's just kind of like, yeah, like great. You know, and everyone's being so happy about it. And this like the slow dread. And I don't know, just like a lot of wide shots. Like it a lot of it does take place in the daytime on the, this wide open step, you know, in this little mm-hmm. Cossack village. And everyone's like singing these like very cool kind of like old Ukrainian like folk songs, you know, throughout. That was the one part that was not dubbed, thankfully. Um, yeah, they left the songs great. in. Mm-hmm, yeah. The, part, the songs. Yeah. He starts singing the song. Like, uh, yeah, I think that he sings like some, I'm not sure, but I felt like they were, because they they weren't subtitled either. Yeah, um, yeah. But I felt like they, they were like, holy uh like church slavonic chants or something they probably were old slavonic because they didn't dub that either when he's in the chapel uh it's like one of the few times you're getting like the real language just like stalin studied Uh, apparently that was his best subject was like singing um really interesting Um, no he hated art he didn't understand anything good he's totally evil um Um, we'll get back to stalin the seminarian maybe uh later but yeah so so actually after he gets like i think this is yeah in the in the movie he also tries to flee right like yeah. after he, yeah, they catch him yeah the guy yeah exactly they're like yeah they're like my good friend like where are you going you know like they're you know mm-hmm. they're kind of like hey, hey, hey you know they're not like don't you dare try to run away like you know they both kind of you know tacitly just accept that he's been caught and like play it off like he was just like wandering around even though he was like totally trying to run but then he's like all right i'm gonna go through it and yeah he goes back in and there's that amazing part where like you see the roof of I guess you, you know, some of our friends traveled like, a, you know, we went some of the way, but I guess you didn't come with us to Romania where no. like, yeah, there's old like wooden uh, Orthodox churches like in, in Romania. They like it's similar to that where like they have like the really like, you know, elaborate uh, iconography like all over them and like the sort of wooden architecture. But it's very, you know, this uh, church is like totally abandoned and like covered in like spider webs. It's definitely described as gloomy in Goggle's story, but I feel like it's absolutely like decrepit in the movie. Like it does kind of feel like, you know, yeah, like what a lot of mosques were reduced to being in Central Asia. (laughs) It's interesting Uh, that like, yeah, yeah, I didn't say, well, because we were in Russia and stuff and I feel like you didn't see as many of those. uh, Well, maybe, uh, maybe because Romania was like an Axis ally in World War II. So they didn't Mm -hmm. burn down all their Orthodox churches like (laughs) they did in like Belarus and Ukraine. Yeah. Um, Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were kind of remote, so it might just be that they were like, you know, yeah, I feel like they're like, you know, one of those... Uh, big attractions. Yeah, I'm sure there like still are. Oddly some. well preserved. Yeah, there definitely are a few in Russia. I yeah, mean, I went to a bunch of Orthodox churches, like going around Russia when I studied there. But you know, there's still a bunch of nice, like Orthodox churches that are like you Stalin know, didn't burn all of them down. No, no he didn't. Kidding. He didn't um, succeed in destroying <laughs> them all, just like how he didn't succeed in, uh, you know, his doing his biggest. Ge- what was it? wasn't who was it who said that Stalin had planned like the ultimate genocide? Anyway, whatever. Um, <laughs> like it's, it's, it's yeah, he was list. just on the cusp of planning it. We talked about it in some early episode. I feel like, but anyway. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I think that was like some kind of like Masha Gessen type person. Yeah, was like like some kind of like children of like Refusenik um, defectors who yeah, like was talking I, about how yeah he was gonna kill all the Jews before or some neocon was writing that. Yes, yeah, like, like he had a plan <laughs> to like kill all the Jews, but like he didn't get to 
because he like died yeah. right on or something. Yeah, right? yeah. but yeah. he was like just about to sign the order. Yeah, he was uh, just, just to about to like them. implement it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yes. Um, oh, yeah. But yeah. anyway, so yeah, but I think you definitely sort of I feel like there is kind of a dialogue happening between like the sense of like spiritual unease. I mean, it is kind of true that everyone always thinks that like their era is like spiritually destitute. I mean, it could just be that humanity is becoming more and more spiritually destitute as like the, as time wears on as human history wears on. I mean, with, uh, you know, maybe not in a total straight line, but like in a general trend, uh, towards like spiritual destitution. But, you know, I feel like there is a parallel between, you know, the sort of moral decay or really, uh, the postulost that yes, the a goggle was sort of observing in the 19th century and kind of portraying about the, you know, the, the, uh, the community, the Cossack community in the story, uh, through the sort of description of the church. And it's like the way that it is like, you know, just this ancient rotting, you know, ruin and the way that it's portrayed in, in the movie, you know, and that kind of, it speaks maybe to both times, like both. The That's 1960s true. Actually. And, and right. Yeah. I mean, in the movie, kind of all the characters embody a certain postulist. Yeah. For I sure. would say, which, you know, is, uh, I guess because we never defined it. I don't think we've ever defined it on an episode before, but uh, that is like a literary concept from the turn of the century in Russia, which a lot of the people like the generation after Gogol would uh, kind of embrace, which it roughly translates to a kind of a, like, like a smug, self-satisfied, like materialistic vanity and a kind of personal corruption, I would say. You could like kind of, I mean, I think Nabokov transliterated it into English in the 20th century as posh lust. Right. Though I think posh lost is like uh, cool enough. Like right. it kind of, it still hits into to the English, yeah, to the English ear. talked about that in his book on Goggle. Um, oh, okay. Right. Yeah. So he was talking about Goggle where, yeah, like Goggle is considered to be like one of the, in fact, I think that he even talked about it, right? Uh, yeah, this is just a quote where he says, he used to say of me, this is about Pushkin, you know, another famous Russian writer. He used mm. to say of me that no other writer before me possessed the gift to expose so brightly life's posh lost, to depict so powerfully the posh lost of the posh lusty man. I love that. <laughs> In such yeah, a way that everybody's eyes would man. be open wide to all the petty trivia that often escape our attention. So that's mm -hmm. what uh, Pushkin used to say about, about Goggle, according to Goggle, <laughs> that he was, you know, the most yeah. gifted of depicting the posh lusty man. That's true. <laughs> that's true. Lust. Yeah. 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 Nabokov said posh lust is not only the obviously trashy, but mainly the falsely important, the falsely beautiful, the falsely clever, the falsely attractive. A list of literary characters personifying posh lust will include Polonius and the royal pair in Hamlet, Rodolf and Home from Madame Bovary, Livesky and Chekhov's The Duel. Joyce's Marion Molly Bloom, uh, Young Block in Search of Lost Time, Anna Karenina's Husband, and Berg and War and Peace. Corny trash, vulgar cliches, Philistinism in all its phases, imitations of imitations, bogus profundities, crude, moronic, and dishonest pseudo-literature. These are obvious examples. Now, if we want to pin down posh lust in contemporary writing, we must look for it in Freudian symbolism, moth-eaten mythologies, social comment, humanistic messages, political allegories, over-concern with class or race, and the journalistic generalities we all know. Wow, so it's like the woke tads, basically. Yeah, <laughs> like, over-concern, well, also over-concern with class, uh, uh, well, so yeah, Nabokov, we should well. say, is a little bit like... Mm. Yeah, uh, um, mm -hmm. but I mean, he 
does have a point. I mean, it's interesting, yeah. like, that a lot of these stories, like, you know, or, you know, Goggle stories and Hoffman stories, like, those were the material that Freud was, like, analyzing and, like, drawing all of his theories uh, out of. And, like, they're all actually good. And, like, when you read it, like, you get kind of the idea. And, like, you can see how, like, Freud, like, you know, the appeal of Freud's analysis. But, like, when people are, like, you know, deliberately putting, like, Freudian symbolism into things, it's so trite and corny. You know, That's so, yeah, yeah, I feel like, yeah, like Hoffman, I, I mean, as I, the reason why I talked about it first episode is because I think he's such an interesting writer. And I would definitely say the same, like, you know, Goggle short stories are, uh, you know, really good. Uh, and they, you know, we can see, like, even in the story that we've been reading some of, like, this sort of, the way that it, like, gives itself to, like, a Freudian reading. Like, but, you know, you can see how Freud would read this and, like, get his ideas from that. But then when people, like, you know, took it to the second level and they're, like, reading everything through Freud and then, like, writing new things, like, okay, so now we have to have this all be about, like, you know, the castration fear and, like, yeah, you know, yeah. the illusory cat, you know, it's, like, uh, anyway, yeah. 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 No, uh, a little so, reductive, basically. Yeah, but there's definitely, like, these these Cossacks definitely have a, a postulosity element, like, to them, like, a sort of banality. And I think that, you know, Holmabrud himself, like, as, like, this sort of philosopher, like, this sort of, you know, superficial or hypocritical seminarian is, like, a, in a way, an example of, of, of these things. Yeah. But, he, yeah, but he's really kind of, like, a moral dirtbag. Yeah. Yeah. Then- and exactly. then his boss, like his head priest, is like venal and kind of smug and corrupt. And then the Cossack and then all the other Cossacks, like just everybody involved in the story is kind of just like so posh losty. Yeah. And, you know, I think uh, it's very interesting. Interesting concept, I think, you know, yeah. that uh, has legs outside of the Russian context, surprisingly enough. But mm-hmm. anyway, so does. then, you know, we come to like the final night, the yeah. third night. Right. Yeah. And he's like, you know, <laughs> it's fine. Like, you know, it was it's scary the first time. Then it's not as scary. And then it's not scary at all. He keeps saying, uh, you know, a Cossack is afraid of nothing. A Cossack yeah. is afraid of nothing. And but, you know, he does get shit faced. They have to like drag him in there. He like very drunkenly like uh, etches out a sacred circle again and then starts singing his prayers. And of course, the girl sits up again in the coffin, begins cursing him. You know, they're kind of going back and forth. But then she starts like summoning things. And then we we get to the quite shocking finale of V. I mean, it jumped out at me because up to this <laughs> point, we, we've seen does. some fun, fun practical effects like, you know, a flying coffin, like bumping against a yeah. invisible magic circle. The nighttime flight itself is a good the nighttime effect, flight. But, yeah, but these, this is really cool. the, the coup de grace uh, for sure. The coup de theat. For anybody um, that loves like old school horror movie practical effects, it truly yeah. is a, a feast of terror. Yes. That begins to unfurl. Uh, I swear to God, I'm going to recut the whole sequence with Helena Bucket playing over it. (laughs) (laughs) I already did Um, it. It's hilarious. Yeah. But Uh, yeah, so like she starts summoning like demons, basically. Yes. And all of a sudden, these like ghostly ghoulish goblins just start like (laughs) popping up out of every orifice in the chapel. Yeah, just swarming everywhere. Like swarming, like different types. of every variety. Yeah. Yeah, like literally Um, goblins, like little goblins with big ears, like yeah. zombie men like men with like four eyes yeah and, like, like a two clacking noses. skeleton <laughs> yeah. yeah a bunch uh, of clacking like like grateful dead skeletons start coming out and like yes. coming for him and right. like there's like a rat there's some kind of like rat creature like that also like hisses at him yeah and 
like they're they're crawling on the ceilings like they do some interesting camera angle effects they have all these like little goblins like crawling around in the ceiling from everywhere she also summons like i forget if she summons the incubi or the succubi but th- she definitely yeah i think she mentions the succubi uh one of those two yeah, yeah. Yeah. She, yeah, summoning like every manner of demon uh, to come in. Yeah. Yeah. And, the, and they're like, they're just like, sw- he's like spinning around and like just being surrounded with all these ghouls. And, but they, they can't get past the sacred circle. Yeah. So finally, she calls out the big guns as she summons V. Yeah. <laughs> she says, like, go get V. Bring V. Bring V, which causes yeah. all the demons to tremble in fear. Yeah. And then out comes the eponymous monster of this yeah. film, V. And uh, just like yeah, <laughs> and it slowly like, walks out. Yeah, lumbering and like yeah, its footsteps go like boom, boom, yeah. boom, like very loudly, like almost like impossibly loudly. <laughs> like it's just very weird, very uncanny. You know, it's just kind of like yeah, walking with these very very heavy footsteps. It's kind of like like a Jim Henson like monstrosity. Uh, it looks kind of like. I don't know, like Fraggle Rock from hell, like one of the like trolls from Fraggle Rock or something. But like, yeah, V is kind of a gigantic troll kind of figure. Yeah. Like he's hulking and thick. And yes. He's kind of big. gigantic. Kind of rocky. And th- yeah. Yeah. And rocky. And the, the chief characteristic, both in the story and the movie, is that he has these gigantic eyelids that that go all the way to the floor. Yes. Yeah. And he demands that the goblins raise his eyelids so that he can cast his gaze upon yes. Coma. And I, um, I guess Coma, like, like he knows that if, like, he can't look the witch in the eye and he, like, can't look V in the eye. And that's yeah, the only thing he, keeping him safe. This is, yeah, this is an interesting part of the story as well. You know, I mean, really, you need to watch the movie to, like, get the point, like, to get, like, what V looks like, but, uh, you know, in this, in this vision, uh, in the 1967 film vision, but the description of him is, like, still pretty good, you know, uh, it, it this is, uh, how it goes, so, he just kept crossing himself and reading prayers at random. At the same time, he heard the unclean powers flitting about him, all brushing him with the tips of their wings and repulsive tails. He did not have the courage to look at them closely. He only saw the whole wall occupied by a huge monster standing amidst its own tangled hair as if in a forest. Through the web of hair, two eyes stared horribly. The eyebrows raised slightly. Above it in the air, there was something like an immense bubble with a thousand tongs and scorpion stings reaching from its middle. Black earth hung on them in lumps. They all looked at him, searching, unable to see him, surrounded by the mysterious circle. And then she says, bring V, go get V, the words of the dead body rang out. And suddenly there was silence in the church. The wolves howling could be heard far away, and soon heavy footsteps rang out in the church. They did do that. Uh, With a sidelong glance, he saw them leading in some squat, hefty, splay-footed man. He was black earth all over. His earth-covered legs and arms stuck out like strong, sinewy roots. Heavily he trod, stumbling all the time. His long eyelids were lowered to the ground. With horror, Coma noticed that the face on him was made of iron. He was brought in under the arms and put right in the place where Coma stood. And then, uh, so I actually was looking online, you know, about this movie, trying to find some interesting things about the story or about the film. And uh, I found, like, some blog post by someone who was kind of, you know, shitting on the story compared to some of Goggle's others. And uh, they got an angry comment that was like, if you ask, like, a native speaker, like, to name a quote from Goggle, like, it won't be a quote from The Overcoat or anything like that. Like, it will be this line, which is, lift my eyelids, I can't see. 
uh, <laughs> you know, V said in a subterranean voice, and the entire host rushed to lift his eyelids. And then, you know, it, the, both in the film and the story, you know, I think in the movie he says, like, I can't look, I, I can't look. You know, it seems like he kind of knows. But mm-hmm. in the story, it's interesting because it says, like, you know, an inner voice whispers to him, don't look. But he can't help himself. And he makes eye contact with <laughs> V. No. And this is really interesting to me because they can't, like, see him. Like, the monsters can't, like, find where he is, really, or get to him. So when he sees V, that is actually what allows V to see him, yeah. uh, which I find to be, like, very provocative, like, as an idea, right? Like, so, yeah. Once he, like, Don't looks go at- looking for the demon. Yeah, it's kind of like the the visor effect that Derrida talks about, like in Spectres of Marx, but it's sort of in reverse almost where like, you know, only by seeing V can V see you, Uh, which I feel like, you know, there definitely is like a some kind of Freudian reading you come up with where like, you know, as Freud wrote about Hoffman, like the eyes, like the fear of having your eyes cut out or like the phallus and like, you know, the eyes of the phallus. But I don't know. I feel like it's more interesting to talk to think about like gazing into the the abyss. Yeah. The, uh, yeah the gaze itself like vision like you know especially in the context like of a film you know uh yeah so then v is like there he is you know and points <laughs> at him and then they can all finally see him and penetrate the circle and that's like and, v's and whole function him. basically yeah is that like you know it, he's the one who can see if he looks at him which i guess he he can't help but but do so yeah it's a very interesting idea that i think has a lot of like you know that's a one of those flourishes that I just think is like very, it's very rich and has like a lot to it. That, yeah. That con- I feel like maybe the key to the whole story is like there in some way, but it's very mysterious. And yeah, you know, there is and, a bit I mean, more the, where, the, yeah, even the, the, the ending after that, cause then just as they all descend upon him and uh, I don't know, attack him, tear him <laughs> apart, whatever the yeah. rooster crows. But I guess the go- the goblins are just so wrapped up in what they're doing. They yeah. miss the first rooster crow and they hear the second one and they all like rush back into their little goblin holes as the right. sun sunlight comes into the church. And some of them get trapped like they're too slow and they get trapped like trying yeah. to escape and just right. like frozen there. Yeah. And then the people come in. Original story too. Like, yeah, they, mm-hmm. they mentioned that like specifically that they were too busy, like devouring him and like, yeah. Then, yeah, like the church, you know, he even says like the church remained forever with monsters stuck in its doors and windows overgrown with forests, roots, weeds, wild blackthorn, and no one now can find the path to it. No. So yeah, all those monsters yeah. like just got stuck in there and like, you know, they didn't. And the people find coma and he's just lying in the circle yeah. like seemingly dead but also not like there and i don't know if that's just the standards of soviet cinema thing but like there's no blood or gore or anything yeah. like that on him he just seems to be like lifeless it says here in the story like after v says there he is and all that were there fell upon the philosopher breathless he crashed to the ground and straight away the spirit flew out of him in terror and yeah. then a cock crow rang out so it, even that like the spirit flew out of him in terror. That could mean that he died, like his soul flew out of him. Yeah. Or or like the fear killed him somehow. That like Right, he died of fright, yeah. But it also says the spirit, not his spirit. So it's kind of ambiguous, right? Yeah. I don't know what the... I, I, again, with Russian, he the gave translation... He ghost, you know, it seems yeah. like. Yeah. yeah, I don't know if... Uh, they don't usually use articles, so yeah, uh, it don't. would probably say That's straight away spirit this, flew yeah. out of him. 
Right, exactly. Like uh, they, uh, but it, it probably yeah, means like, that it didn't right. say his spirit because I feel like they would have translated it that way. Yeah, maybe That's not. Guess. I'll see what the other. Yeah, because I didn't read it in Russian, but yeah, in the other translation, just he sank to the ground and died. So I feel like yeah, maybe mm, interesting it's idiomatic for dying, like gave up the ghost or something. But yeah, um, but then yeah. you know both both um the movie well the movie has an interesting postscript yeah where, it does you know, i thought that was interesting yeah it was which isn't it really was. in the story part of it is but not uh the sort of yeah the element of ambiguity around like the death right right um, it cut yeah it cuts to back to the monastery you know where yeah. coma had attended and there's two young seminarians who are kind of like working kind of dawdling and like working on painting some icons like outside yeah. And they kind of talk about like, damn, you hear about what happened to poor Coma, man, like yeah. blah, blah, blah. And they kind of mention, you know, they, they say, hey, let's drink to his memory. But the other guy kind of expresses doubts that Coma is really dead. And yeah. then a couple priests are approaching them and he's like, look, that could be him right now walking up to us. And yeah. instead, it's just like their overseers being like, hey, you get back to work. And yeah. then they do. And that's the end. You know, they say something interesting that is like really in that is in the story. Like, uh, you know, the the first one. Uh, so I guess who were his his old friends, the same old friends who he That's went right. to the cottage with on that fateful night and started, started all this. Yeah. And they're doing well in their seminary studies, you know, still kind of like goofing around, but also not horribly murdered by V. Yeah, that's another, you know, you mentioned the lack of the use of articles in Russian, which is something like, you know, uh, like Goggle's story, uh, the marriage or uh, marriage, right? Like mm. uh, it's translated both ways. So V is actually translated as both V and the V. Uh, huh. You know, you don't know if it's a proper name or if it's like, you know, his office or something. But because uh, again, yeah. we don't really know what the V is. But uh, yeah. anyway, so yeah, in the, uh, both in the story and the movie, Gorobets, one of them says the reason why he died was because he was scared. You know, if he just wouldn't have been scared, then right. nothing would have happened to him, right? Like uh, he even says, like in Kiev here, you know, all the old women in the marketplace are witches, but yeah, it's fine. Like you know, you just got to not be yeah. afraid. Yeah, exactly. Um, just like don't don't get tripped out about it. Exactly. And yeah, don't and then, give them the power to right. spook you. And then, yeah, the other guy kind of raises that interesting idea that like, yeah, you know, I don't know if he really died, which is interesting. Because they you just know, cut away from like, him lying on the floor. He could have just passed out. But like everyone, you know, talks about him like he's yeah. dead. Like it's assumed that he's dead. It's just very it's, odd. Yeah, it's an interesting sort of like a thing they added to an otherwise like pretty faithful adaptation. Uh, there's very few things that are like truly like, uh, you know, don't have a parallel in the short story. So yeah, I wonder if it's to kind of like emphasize the sort of unreliability of the narrator, maybe in a way that like the story might not be true at all, or might be like a representation of some reality, but not like correspond to it exactly. Yeah. But and yeah, and just know. the weird vibe that like coma was almost like sacrificed by all yeah. these Cossacks and everyone's like covering it like it implies by their conversation at the end of the movie that they never got his body back or something yeah that like they nobody saw his body true like no yeah that is a good casket. point right and like so they're just yeah. taking it on faith they were told that he went out to this place and died but they're like uh, who really knows man like you know so it, it it even brings up a kind of yeah like this unreliability about 
like the orthodox kind of the local orthodox hierarchy almost like being in on it maybe and them just kind of being like yeah but like don't worry about all that like let's just you know things worked out for us but yeah it's very eerie there definitely were in on it yeah like and you know they were they were complicit definitely they were just as much complicit in Kalma's death as he was in the death of the witch to begin with you know I mean there's that one line I feel like that's like a witch is a witch you know like uh like yeah she was the you know the chief's daughter but the witch is a witch you know it's the same thing where it's like you know what uh I mean Kalma even keeps saying throughout like he has a very kind of uh you know so it goes philosophy you know where that's like kind of why he's described as a philosopher right because he kind of has that uh you know, they ask him at one point, actually, it's a little bit different in the movie and the story, like, because they ask, like, the Cossacks kind of ask, like, what do they, what do they teach you Reading at the seminary? Books. Yeah. yeah. Like, that they whole teach thing. you, they ask him, like, uh, I like to know what they teach you at the seminary, the same as what the deacon reads in church or something else. They're like, do you yeah. have, like, secrets, you know? Yeah. And, no, that was um, interesting. I thought that, okay, yeah. that, that definitely checks out for the Soviet era. It's like, because, you know, none of these people are literate back then. And, you know, he's basically saying like, yeah, like, do you guys have secrets in your books that you're not telling? I'd like to read those books. You know, yeah. I'd like to go to the seminary and stuff like that. Yeah. So it's like back when it's so easy to forget now that both in like Orthodox Christianity and in Catholicism, you know, a couple hundred years ago, even after the printing press was invented, like there was still such mass illiteracy among like peasants in Europe yeah. that you really would have to take their word for it a lot of the time. And right. you just don't, you got to take it on, on faith basically. Yeah. Like what's even in the book. Um, right. And I don't know. I mean, did they, you know, was this like a, kind of like a ritualistic revenge killing because they actually knew, you know, was the Cossack father lying that, like, did she actually reveal the identity? Like, that's my murderer. Like, bring him here. And they're like, oh, yeah, wait, we're going to torture him and like have my witch daughter like yeah. basically condemn his soul, like eat his soul and like condemn it to hell. Because they don't actually seem that interested in like the, the whole thing about, oh, you need to pray for the repose of my daughter's soul. Definitely yeah. feels like a pretense to whatever their real reason is for sacrificing Coma to V, you know? Yeah, he also, like, isn't remotely surprised when he comes to her or, like, even offended when he comes to her and says, like, that she's had dealings with the devil. He's no, just he doesn't like, care. Yeah. Yeah, he's like, well, you know, obviously she wants you to, like, you know, that's why she asked you here so that you can pray for her soul. Yeah. You know? Everybody, yeah. you know, everybody sins sometimes. Everybody makes a pact with the devil sometimes. What's the big deal? Like, just, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't seem to be phased that she was, like, unrepentant and that she was in league with Satan and all this other stuff.
it might be helpful to go back and talk a little bit about the life and career of the original author of the story, Nikolai Vasilievich Gogol. We just figured out. <laughs> we we yeah, looked up how to properly still like up in it. the air. Literally in grad here. school, like someone yelled at me that it was Goggle because I was saying Goggle. And I guess it's still affecting me because I can't believe that someone was so passionate like to yell that at me if it wasn't <laughs> even true. I mean, I feel like listening to that pronunciation we found on YouTube of a Russian person saying it, I can see how like with an American accent, it could come out both ways. But I'm really like right now I'm having like a like a whole moment over this because <laughs> literally like I've been living alive for like all these years. Like, wow. Um, yeah. Just goes to show like anyway. Yeah. Serious academics. academics. I mean, it wasn't like another, goggle. it was another graduate student. She was like very worked up over it. Um, hmm. and, like, you know, I feel like she was mad at me about something else, but she was like taking the opportunity to call me like a pseudo intellectual cause I pronounced goggle slash goggle wrong but i guess she was wrong again yeah, I, I don't so. know i can't according I can't to google and wikipedia it is pronounced well as close yeah. as a english-speaking person could so i might keep saying as. goggle but i'll try to well. adjust it just it, now it sounds wrong to me because i had that experience but anyway yeah well, so you got psyoped we'll see what our listeners say they'll probably <laughs> now that we've had this conversation we'll probably get their opinions so yes, uh yes. about how okay. to say goggle slash goggle Google, mm-hmm. maybe it's a happy medium. Anyway, so anyways, yeah, he's definitely Nikolai an interesting Gogol. figure. You kind of touched on him a bit, like very greatly revered Russian writer. I think like uh, Dostoevsky said something like, you know, we all like all of like, uh, you know, this sort of uh, 19th century, like Russian, like like realist, quote unquote, tradition or like the sort of, uh, you know, the the that golden era of Russian literature mm-hmm. uh, that like you know they all came out of Goggle's overcoat you know it was a big turning point moment was that and I think yeah we mentioned a little bit before how you know V was something that he wrote before that you know that was in his like sort of more famous collection of Petersburg tales that are set in, uh, set in Saint Petersburg and uh, yeah it's like very iconic if you, anyone knows Master Margarita by Bulgakov uh, yeah. that is definitely has a Goggle vibe. It's interesting, actually, like I was thinking, you know, during the break about that line from the end when whoever it is, the other seminarian who says that, like, there's witches all over here in the marketplace in Kiev, which is like interesting because, like, you know, in these classic uh, horror movie setups, like or the classic sort of analyses of these types of films or even of Dracula, you know, it's sort of the juxtaposition of the city, the sort of rational world of the city and the irrational world of the countryside. But that's kind of a repudiation of that in a way, because it's the idea that there is this sort of irrationality like lurking under the surface. Like every old woman in the marketplace here in Kiev is actually a witch. But like we just don't sweat it like so much. The original Uh, ghosts of Kiev. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, There's lots of ghosts in Kiev. um, But uh, yeah. uh, uh, I mean, Petersburg Tales is like, you know, his tales set in St. Petersburg are kind of, uh, you know, similar where there is that kind of like strange element. Uh, but in a very different way. But uh, yeah, he was, he's someone who I think, you know, it kind of does persist to the the present day and that in the same way that he's like, would be claimed by both Russians and like Ukrainian nationalists, maybe. Mm-hmm. I feel like during the time he was claimed by people of different political tendencies 
And, you know, he had friends, I think, and supporters who were both like sort of Westernizers and Slavophiles. Yeah, as you mentioned earlier, that was kind of like the one of the chief like dialectics of of his day was Mm -hmm. this impulse between which really is like it recurs throughout Russian history. Yeah. into the 20th century, definitely throughout the Soviet experience and even to an extent today where you see like uh, Putler, you know, basically, you know, turning his back on the West, you know, and charting like a more, you know, as like Dugan would say, like a more Eurasian course or like or identifying Russian civilization as very distinct and separate from European civilization, things yeah. like that. No, I'm and far from an expert like in Russian history, but I did take a... Uh, like a bunch of classes in Russia, like with, you know, Russian professors and, uh, you know, on various subjects like art history and cinema and, uh, you know, the literature and things like that as part of uh, my time at the, the Moscow Art Theater. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, not like acting or anything, but just like studying their uh, dramaturgy. But that was like basically what they constantly were hammering home. I mean, I feel like it probably is like, if I extrapolate my knowledge like of other subjects, I feel like it probably is like a bit of an overblown cliche, but they still always constantly like hammered that point that like we're torn between East and West. Like, you know, we're constantly at war with ourselves because we can't figure out whether we're, you know, of the East or of the West. And like that's, you know, the main theme in Russian history. So I'd say most prominently in Russian history, but it's something that almost cuts through the kind of histories of like all the Slavic cultures like mm-hmm. to a lesser extent, like the Western Slavs, definitely because of their Catholicism, like Poles and Czechs and stuff, they're a little bit more copacetic with like considering themselves European. But at the same time, there's like their Slavicness and the deep roots that they they share mm-hmm. with like Ukrainians and Russians and South Slavs and stuff has always like there's even been conflicts throughout basically. And uh, I mean, a lot of like a lot of like the Polish anti-communist sentiment, for example, like in the 20th century was this kind of based on this notion that Russia was like dragging Poland to like their like Eurasian Slavic hell to like yeah. not be European anymore. And no. but they actually were Europeans like stop it, yeah. you know, and stuff like that. And even with Ukraine today, like you see Ukraine is kind of struggling where like Western Ukrainians like want to be in the EU and yeah. like be Bandarites. Well, and, NATO, but, <laughs> yeah. But yeah. like the Eastern Ukrainians and places like Donbass, like identify much more naturally with just sort of like Russian culture in general and like a, Ru- a pan Russian kind of identity and so yeah it's like always it's always there it does get blown up into a cliche a lot uh, yeah a lot of I mean times. I feel like it's probably like maybe the civil war in American history or like the conflict between uh, north and south where like it doesn't explain everything and it's much more complex than that but it's not false to say that that is like a very big uh, theme in American history. <laughs> Or I maybe mean, God, the Yankee, yeah, even yeah, the Yankee, Yankee and cowboy, cowboy thing. Yeah, yeah exactly. like the idea of uh, the Yankees feeling like they're in continuity with European civilization, and the Cowboys feeling a little bit more like almost like some st- like Western step Cossacks feeling like they represent a break with European civilization. Yeah, and they're their own thing, and we shouldn't give a fuck about Europe. So, yeah, I mean these uh these these fraught conceptions of identity are are yeah. quite common i would say but right in, yeah in the uh, russian context it often gets boiled down to this yeah 
And you know. I mean, it definitely like what how like uh, a lot of the time these sort of like intellectualizations of like uh, kind of historical like in the sort of a long durée or whatever you want to call it like where you know you're trying to create a grand narrative of like the history of a region or whatever you know that can get like very uh nitty-gritty and kind of very uh i don't know like conscientious or, or circumspect but like it's definitely true that like in goggles time like it was like a political thing where, like, people were of, like, you know, very clear tendencies on one side or the other. <laughs> Maybe not necessarily, like, well, Goggle's an example of someone who was kind of in between, or, like, I mean, we see this today with, like, the political divisions in the United States, right, or in any country, where, like, mm -hmm. you know, people sometimes are in between positions on different issues, but if you say, like, one thing in one direction then, like, you know, the people sympathetic with that or with the opposite will be like, what the fuck is your problem? And yeah, vice versa. Yeah, you, Exactly, you. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Like, a little bit of that did happen. Yeah, you said gin or real, uh, you know, you call yourself a leftist, but, you, believe, <laughs> you know, like... Um, oh, exactly. That's kind it, of happened to Goggle uh, in a way. <laughs> like, um, it, it did, yeah. it did. I mean, uh, well, that's also the thing that does recur through a lot of Russian history where there's often, like, if you peek below the surface these kind of pronouncements of like, oh, in this period, they embraced Western and Westernization. In this period, they embraced great Russian chauvinism is oftentimes it's like a much more complex mixture of the two things. Like for, I mean, one big example that is the Soviet Union because yeah. it ended up being perceived, particularly in the West, as this ultimate kind of like Eurasian, like Russian despotism kind of thing particularly under Stalin, but at the same time, what was the basis of the entire like ideological apparatus of the Soviet Union was like a German Jew who yeah. wrote like, you know, Marx and Engels and stuff. And right. so, which is like inherently like a Western European idea, um, you know, yeah. concept you, that came out of Western Europe. Right. And you were even mentioning like before uh, when we were off the air, like you were talking about how that actually was uh, kind of relevant to the Soviet portrayal of, of Gogol, where they would say that mm -hmm. he was a like the greatest Russian patriot. You know, he hated the West or whatever, but actually <laughs> he was influenced by all of these, you know, people like Hoffman. Uh, so they kind of tried to obscure that aspect of him to like say that yeah. he's like uniquely Russian. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit, like the Soviet interpretation of Gogol and how it sort of shifted between, say, like the 1920s and the 1950s, usually on the side of like supporting and holding up Gogol as a great Russian writer. And so, I mean, we'll have to, sorry, anti-communist, but like they didn't just like hate everybody that was good at art and like ban them and like blah, blah, blah. No, they championed uh, Gogol. No, Stalin I think in, in particular a lot of ways. was a huge Gogol fan. Stalin loved yeah. Gogol and I so mean, did he, Lenin. Yeah, there was, I mean, despite the idea that they like hated all art. I mean, one thing that is true is that although Gogol, I think in his will, requested that there not be like a monument erected to him, there was, in fact, a monument erected to him by the Soviets, but originally they did one that was, like, too abstract, and Stalin allegedly got upset and demanded, like, a more socialist realist I did read uh, that. statue. Though I'm not yeah. sure if the first statue was built before or after the Russian Revolution. I forget exactly. Yeah, it, it was, was, like, a whole thing where, like, they had to save the statue. Yeah. Yeah. So there, he kind of went on a journey in terms of, like, what he meant to, like, the canon of Russian literature. But just to talk a little bit about, like, his life, because he's a guy who died 
relatively young. I mean, he died at age 42 in 1852. And, you know, I think he, like you said, he was immensely influential to, like, subsequent generations of Russian writers in that kind of uh, golden age. But I guess, you know, so he was born in a Ukrainian Cossack town, Sorochintsi, in the Poltava government of the Russian Empire. I guess his father was a descendant of Ukrainian Cossacks who, uh, Cossacks who belonged to the petty gentry. And yeah. he was part of the, the what's called the left bank Ukrainian gentry, which somewhat confusingly, I don't know who decided to call it the left bank, but it's the eastern side of the Dnieper River, mm-hmm. like immediately east of Kiev. Um, where, you know, a lot of fighting, I think, is going on today. Levo Berenzne. All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so yeah, even though, the, like, like I would consider the left bank to be, like, the western side of the... Who knows? What, who fucking cares? Well, uh, maps haven't always been like that, so... Eh. You're right. You're right. Maybe not. Maybe they were looking south and thought, oh, this is the left yeah, side of the bank. Exactly. You know? Yeah, so... So yeah, th- that's kind of where he was uh, from, and he, he grew up speaking Ukrainian and Russian, and I guess his dad was a bit of an amateur playwright and poet and stuff. So, you know, in 1820, he went to art school in Nezhin and started writing there. I guess he was not popular among his schoolmates who called them their, quote, mysterious dwarf. I don't know. Serious dwarf. I guess he had a he developed a dark and secretive disposition, marked by a painful self consciousness and boundless ambition. Early early he developed a talent for mimicry, which, you know, I guess I don't know, made him think about becoming an actor. So then yeah. he he graduated school, went to Saint Petersburg, full of vague but ambitious hopes, and he did write a poem like a German romantic poem, Hans Kugelgarten. Uh, yeah. Hans <laughs> and Kugelgarten. Pu- yeah, he, he like self-published it under the pseudonym V. Alov and sent it to a bunch of magazines, but they almost universally derided it. So he bought all copies and destroyed them, swearing to never write poetry again. <laughs> yeah, he was prone to like destroying his work. Uh, yes, he was. I guess yeah. he did that a Stormy bunch of Stormy individual. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's actually, if you like look at the two monuments of Goggle that we just mentioned, like it really does like reflect the two sort of sides of Goggle as like a figure. Like one of them really is like the sort of mysterious tortured dwarf in appearance. Like he's like hunched over and he looks like so <laughs> tormented. And the other one is like, you know, just standing up proudly. Like it looks like a, you know, might as well be like a statue of like Stalin or Lenin. You know, he's got like, yeah. Yeah. He's just like very, very like standard uh, statue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he started writing short stories, I guess, in the 1830s. And I guess the first one were like Ukrainian stories. Uh, Evenings on a Farm Near Dikanka was his first. And it was a success. And then he published a volume called Mirgorod in uh, 1835 and two volumes of miscellaneous yeah, that's prose the one that entitled v Arabesques. In. Mirgorod, yeah, that's okay. the one that he was in. Yeah, and then I don't know about arabesques, but you know, I guess yeah. it's like some, you know. I don't uh, think that it actually had to do with the Arab world at all. Um, I think that is just like uh, a common sort of term for a type of design. Like I guess, like what in is the like West Arabian they called it. Or in the West they called it. No, it doesn't have to do with the Thousand One Nights really, but 
in the West, they called like an arabesque, like any kind of design that had like entangling lines because it looked like Arabic writing. Um, oh, okay, I think okay. so. I think the idea was that like it was a bunch of different themes. And like, so it was like all these kind of entangling lines. Like loosely interconnected short stories. Kind yeah, of I think so. Okay, uh, I don't know if they're even interconnected, but like they were kind of like diverse. Uh, and like, okay. yeah, like, I don't know. So that was the, maybe the idea. So I think yeah. I was referring to the idea, the design of, of the arabesque, which was sort of yeah inspired by either, maybe it was even inspired by like Islamic architecture where, you know, you have hmm. certain like, but I think it was mostly like a reference to the calligraphy. Okay. Yeah. Well, all right. So he gets some success off of these first like short story collections. And then I guess he develops a passion for Ukrainian Cossack history and uh, tried to obtain an appointment to the history department of St. Vladimir Imperial University of Kiev. Mm -hmm. That's right. I said Kiev. Um, despite the support of Alexander Pushkin and Sergei Uvarov, the Russian Minister of Education, the appointment was blocked by a bureaucrat on the grounds that Gogol was unqualified. His fictional story, Taras Bulba, based on the history of the Zaporozhian Cossacks, was the result of this phase in his interest. Uh, and I guess he became very good friends with historian and naturalist uh, Mikhailo Maximovich around this time. And then he did become a professor at the University of St. Yeah, Petersburg. Yeah, that's a really funny story. He, yeah. Uh, but Thomas <laughs> Bulba, I think, does have like a, an, also like a supernatural element to it. Am I right? Or maybe I'm I think so. getting, yeah. Um, I think that's one of his most famous works is Taras yeah, Bulba. Yeah, that was around the same kind of uh, period. Of oh, it's about Cossacks going to war against Poland, actually. Mm. So it's very funny that he was, like, interested in, like, kind of had, like, a dilettante interest in, like, the history of Cossacks. So then he mm -hmm. managed to get himself, like, an academic appointment, and he just, like, said a bunch of bullshit and then, like, just got too depressed and, like, gave up. Yeah, yeah. The, this is the um, quote about his time there is, uh, as a professor of medieval history, he... <laughs> A quote, he turned in a performance ludicrous enough to warrant satiric treatment in one of his own stories. After an introductory lecture made up of brilliant generalizations, which the, quote, historian had prudently prepared and memorized, he gave up all pretense at erudition and teaching, missed two lectures out of three, and when he did appear, muttered unintelligibly through his teeth. At the final examination, he sat in utter silence with a black handkerchief wrapped around his head, simulating a toothache, while another <laughs> professor interrogated his students. That's, that's funny. <laughs> and then he um, resigned his chair the next year. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that, that didn't work out so well for him. Yes. So, yeah, that was kind of like a turning point, I feel like, where he started to kind of get a bit scattered. I mean, he was, like, as you said, like a stormy uh, personality, but he was totally unqualified <laughs> to be a history scholar, you know, despite the praise that he received for his, uh, you know, works previously. So then he... The, the nose was the nose before or after that i guess it was i think the uh, nose i i forget i forget the, the his, nose came his out next in 1930 oh, sorry 1836 again oh, okay so it's a little yeah a little yeah. later right before that he puts on a play of his comedy the government inspector yeah, Revisor, Revisor. right which i mentioned yeah uh, mm -hmm. right. yeah which was i guess when he finally kind of believed in his own like literary vocation after yeah. that. And those are and still some of his most famous things. Mm -hmm. uh, so it makes sense. But yeah. Yeah. And uh, this is a weird little side note about it because it was a, uh, a violent satire of Russian provincial bureaucracy, but it was staged thanks only to the intervention of the czar, Nicholas the first. 
So he actually, I guess, I guess Nicholas the first was maybe uh, on a, a little bit of a reformist liberal kick at the moment and figured, yeah, like, why not, you know, have a play that makes fun of the Russian provincial bureaucracy, I guess. Right. Yeah. So I guess it actually was partially during the time that he was like a professor that he was writing a lot of this stuff. So he was kind of like mm-hmm. phoning it in as an yeah. academic, uh, <laughs> working on his own things. But yeah, I don't know why he was so passionate about like being as color of an evil history when he like was totally not. I mean, I guess maybe it was a cushy gig in uh, Imperial Russia. Um, probably was. Yeah. Probably was, but it didn't work out for him. But then, no, it didn't. and then he he ended up like living abroad from 1836 to 1848, and uh, you know spent time in Germany, Switzerland, and Paris. Uh, hung out with like the ex the kind of the Russian and Polish expat communities. The interesting, he became kind of friends with um, Adam Mikhevich and Bogdan Zaleski. Adam Mikhevich is like probably the most famous Polish poet. Right. Um, maybe of all time. Yeah. But definitely in the 19th century. And I guess Bogdan Zaleski. I remember Zaleski, reading some of his poems. He has like a, a weird kind of uh, witchy type poem. Uh, doesn't he? Uh, I think. Interesting. Or I don't like, know. Oh, Forefathers I, Eve, right? <laughs> yeah. There's some like weird like witchery type stuff yeah there's ghosts and stuff in forefathers eve so yeah. interesting i'm yeah. most familiar with like pontadius which you know has been made into movies and stuff that was a big epic poem yeah. um and he was like a romantic nationalist basically during we should say the period of uh, polish partition where poland mm-hmm. was just like split up between three empires you know and yeah. not not a country. It is <laughs> funny that I guess in Taurus Bulba there he's he got some flack for uh actually he didn't get flack for his depictions of different ethnic groups in Taurus Bulba. One author stated that the Yankel from Taurus Bulba indeed became the archetypal Jew in Russian literature. Gogol painted him as supremely exploitative, cowardly, and repulsive, albeit capable of gratitude. And <laughs> there's uh, a scene in uh, Taurus Bulba where Jews are thrown into a river, a scene where Taurus Bulba visits the Jews and seeks their aid. And referenced by the narrative of the story that Jews are treated inhumanely. All right. Uh, fair so for the time. His nice. his depiction yeah. of Poles, though, is kind of funnier and even kind of echoes with today. So because this is right after the 1830 November uprising against Russian imperial rule in the heartland of Poland. And then that after that, the Tsarist authorities began an official campaign of discrimination. Historian Lyudmila Gadagova said practically all of the Russian government, bureaucracy, and society were united in one outburst against the Poles. The phobia that gripped society gave a new powerful push to the Russian national solidarity movement. It was in this particular context that many of Russia's literary works and popular media at the time became hostile towards the Poles in accordance with the state policy, especially after the emergence of the pan-Slavist ideology, accusing them of betraying the, quote, Slavic family. No. (laughs) No. Just like today. Ukraine is betraying the Slavic family. Yeah, I guess somebody said that, uh, yeah, according to Professor Vilo Harley, I don't know, a Finnish person, Taurus Bulba, published only four years after the rebellion, was a part of this anti-Polish propaganda effort. Inadvertently, Gogol's accomplishment became, quote, an anti-Polish novel of high literary merit, to say nothing about lesser writers. And they also note that, as in other Russian novels of the era, Turks are treated as barbaric and uncivilized compared to Europeans because of their nomadic nature. Hmm. Okay. So, you know, maybe not. We're, we're seeing a little, you know, a little Russian chauvinism kind of creep in to some of this stuff. But anyways, so he is living abroad. But maybe that changed after he was hanging out with Adam Mikhevich. It seems like it'd be hard to be like a total anti-pole 
if you're hanging out with like the most like nationalist romantic Polish poet of all time, right? Mm, yeah. Maybe. Um, and he did get a little bit sucked into like pan Slavism, I think a little bit later, but anyways, so yeah. yeah, I guess, you know, he, he spent a lot of time in Rome. He developed an adoration for the city and yeah. you know, read Italian literature, loved opera. And I guess Pushkin's death was, uh, had a strong impression on him. Right. He and obviously loved Pushkin. Uh, yeah. He loved Pushkin. Who doesn't? Uh, so he yeah, wrote the satirical doesn't? epic dead souls, yeah, you know, and the portrait and marriage, which we referenced, and the overcoat, his most famous story from eighteen forty-two, yeah. mm-hmm. which yeah. also this does have a ghost sighting in it, so there is a little bit of ooky spookery in it, but otherwise it's just like very kind of straightforward, like kind of bureaucratic tragedy. Yeah, postalisty man. Um, well, so I don't so even know he if I would call him a postalisty man, but yeah, I would recommend mm. it. It's a good story. Yeah. yeah. So I, you know, he's, he basically, he got very famous at this point and, you know, he came back to Russia to like publish dead souls in Russian and all this stuff. I guess he had planned dead souls to be, it was like the first part of a modern day counterpart to Dante's divine comedy. Yeah. I've heard that. Yeah. That he wanted to write like more chapters of it or more installments of it. Yes. And it seems like his, you know, the, well, for one dead souls, like, what it kind of refers to is like the institution of serfdom because you would own like souls of serfs. That's like how ser- like serf ownership was denoted. Even on Wikipedia, it says uh, to count serfs and people in general, the classifier soul was used. Uh, for example, six souls of serfs. The plot um, of the novel relies on dead souls, dead serfs, which are still accounted for in property registers. Oh, and it, like, it also yeah. says, yeah, it says on another level, the title refers to the dead souls of Google's characters, all of which represent different aspects of Poshlost, a yeah. Russian noun rendered as commonplace, vulgarity, moral and spiritual with overtones of middle class pretentiousness, fake significance and philistinisms. Yeah, I've never actually yeah. read the dead souls. I mean, people have just like uh, lauded it to me like immensely. I have like some background knowledge of it, but I've never actually read like the whole thing. I guess, yeah, yeah Chikikov is supposed, the main character Chikikov is supposed to be, like, you know, the big, uh, like, the the Pochlosti man, like, par excellence. And, yeah, I guess they had to change the title to The Adventures of Chikikov, like, when it first was published, because they didn't want to call it Dead Souls. I don't know, I yeah. guess maybe because of the connotations of... Well, uh, let, me, let me see, when was, uh, I want to see exactly when serfdom was abolished in Russia or serfdom was abolished in Russia, 1861. So yeah, so he's writing before the actual abolition of serfdom. Yeah. Um, and he became known as like a very stinging, witty, uh, satirical critic yes. of both like the system of serfdom and just like the unseemly sides of Imperial Russia yeah. in general. But like a big thrust, like I think that part of the fact that he, or part of the idea of developing dead souls like into a purgatorio and a paradiso was that he really felt driven to do something, like, positive, like, that he wanted to, like, present a positive model for people, you know? He felt kind Mm. of, like, that all of his work just, like, tore people down and showed them, like, what was bad uh, about society, but, like, he felt, like, compelled to create something that would, like, you know, give a good example. That's very interesting. When you think about like the 20th century context in the Soviet Union, how I think some people would almost say that is like, oh, that was like a bad thing about Soviet art. 
was that it was like trying to model positive virtues and not just be like bleh, like death, like sex, like destruction, you know, <laughs> and like actually embody something like aspirational and like good, et cetera, et cetera. So this is like an early, maybe a very early iteration of trying to use art as like a positive weapon in that way. But he gets a little bit like derailed, I think, from that quest, right? We could say. Well, it's interesting. In the last few years of his life. It's interesting, actually, because, okay, so uh, a work of his, what really is a work of his, you know, like was compiled by his and put together like as part of that kind of thing was when I wonder if he published did he publish this before or after his like pilgrimage to Jerusalem and everything he went to Jerusalem in 1848 yeah so did he publish his um I'm trying to see if uh like uh essays selected passages yeah okay so he actually published it like a little bit before he did not have a good time in Jerusalem by the way he like was not happy there but uh, you know, it's a, it's actually interesting because before that, like in 19, uh, sorry, again, I'm doing the same thing when I say 19, when I mean 18, 1847, he published, uh, like a, what I found to be a pretty interesting piece. I mean, like, I feel like if I read them back to back, like, you know, obviously his classic stories, like, you know, really stand out and everything, but this is a side of goggle that like prior to doing the reading for this episode, like I hadn't really seen so much and it is an interesting work because you know as i said it's called uh just selected passages from correspondence with friends and he just published some letters of his that he had written to friends especially uh ap tolstoy not to be confused with leo tolstoy he was like a big statesman in russia just were like, they were they from the same family though um i don't know i guess he was from the uh Oriol branch of the tolstoy family his father, yeah. Alexander Tolstoy, was the grandson of, grandson of Count Pyotr Andreevich Tolstoy. Yeah, so I don't know. Uh, yeah, the Tolstoys was, were like a big family. Yeah. Like the one that the author He was from a branch of the Tolstoy okay. family, but I'm not sure if he so was from we got like, like an, the same we got an elk, <clears throat> We have like an Elkins situation going on here. Yeah, it's a bit. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's a two. It's a two branched family. So I'm not sure like what his relationship to uh, Leo Tolstoy was like actually. Um, or like what is, you know, genealogy third or fourth cousin. Yeah, like you know, probably knows. somehow. Yeah. Okay. But so he was writing yeah, to this, this guy who was a big actually he was he was prominent in the siege of Warsaw, uh, this guy. Um oh, he commanded wow. two battalions in the Battle of Praga and uh he was awarded the Order of Saint George by Catherine the Second. But anyway, so yeah, he was I guess a big correspondent of uh Goggle and they had a bunch of like interests in common. Uh in particular, like, you know, Christianity and Orthodoxy and all these things. But anyway, I found, you know, this, uh, these texts to be very interesting. A lot of them, like, re like you know, are pretty, like, they can maybe uh, go against the perception of Gogol that you might get, like, from undergrad or whatever. Or, like, you know, uh, the way Gogol is taught is, like, the great satirist who, like, tore everything down because in this... He sort of comes off, you know, not to be reductionist, but he kind of comes off like a frothing reactionary who like loves the <laughs> czar and like loves the Orthodox Church and everything. And like, uh, you know, one of his like former supporters, famously Belinsky, who like kind of was one of the early big goggle critics. Uh, he actually called him like a proponent of the knout, the apostle of ignorance, a champion of obscuritanism and a panegyrist of Tatar ways. Uh, <laughs> a little bit racist against of that. Tatar ways. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So in the introduction to this in this collection, you know, in, in English, in this translation, not by Goggle, but by by the translator or the editor, he says that the responses to selected passages came quickly and they were even worse than Goggle had expected. 
as he wrote to Zukovsky, the publication of my book uh, burst forth exactly like a slap in the face, a slap in the face of the public, a slap in the face of my friends, and finally, a, a stouter slap in my face. Uh, while he felt that he might have made a fool of himself, Stogol tried to explain. The opponents as well as the defenders are more or less in an uneasy state, and many are simply nonplussed as to where to turn, being able to make any apparently contradictory things harmonize because of the sharpness with which they were expressed. Uh, his sensitivity to criticism again overcame him, however, when he concluded his letter by suggesting that perhaps he had been guilty of those very sins that he had anathemized in his book. He says, uh, I did not compile this book to anger the Bolinskys, the Kravskys, uh, the Senkowskys. I was looking to, into the inside of Russia, not at literary society. Uh, but the censors, you know, they took out uh, a lot of the particular advice that he put in, according to him. And he mm. said that that, like, ruined it or, you know, made it worse. So now the book consists of generalities instead of those people and subjects which would should have stepped out before the readers. I alone stepped out on stage, exactly as if I were publishing my book in order to display myself. So, yeah, it was not uh, well so received. So he does autofiction and gets canceled. Exactly. Um. He did autofiction got canceled. People <laughs> literally just, you know, this is kind of where, like, it's a kind of a take Kaczynski situation. I mean, not the best analogy, but a lot of people are like, oh, he lost it. Like, he's crazy. Like, he's, he's, well, he's actually, you know insane. What, yeah. You know what it really reminds me of is, like, people's reaction to, like, when Kanye dropped, like, Jesus is king. Yes, and, it is. And very started much saying like that. certain yeah, things about like, like abortion's bad. And like, what? Like, take your meds, you motherfucker. Like, yeah, exactly. Yes, yeah. it is much more like, like that. Uh, that saying, like, I didn't vote, but mind. if I did, I would have voted for Trump. And like, it's like, lock yeah, him like, up. Lock like, him up in a mental institution. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, you know, he had like a close relationship with an Orthodox priest, uh, Matvey Alexandrovitz right? Konskanovsky. Yeah, a Staretz. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's a little bit murky, like there might be some truth to it, but like the sort of tra uh, traditional narrative is that like this guy was like kind of like a Rasputin like uh, figure who was like, you know, manipulating Goggle and like driving him insane. And like, his, his you know, Dugan. yeah, exactly. His Dugan. Well, yeah, um, he starts to kind of like he starts to get spiral a little bit under this, you know, the cloud of cancellation and it, it, I don't know what happened to him on his pilgrimage to Jerusalem, but that also seemed to, I don't know, have some kind of effect on him. And of course, yes, the star at uh, Konstantinovsky. There's no citation here, but it's interesting, so I'll read it. Mm -hmm. That uh, Konstantinovsky seems to have strengthened in Gogol the fear of perdition by insisting on the sinfulness of all his imaginative work. Exaggerated ascetic practices undermined his health, and he fell into a state of deep depression. On the night of February 24th, 1852, he burned some of his manuscripts, which contained most of the second part of Dead Souls. He explained this as a mistake, a practical joke played on him by the devil. Soon thereafter, he took to bed, refused all food, and died in great pain nine days later. No. What? Yeah, uh, I know, Jesus. So the devil plays a trick on The devil psyops him into burning, like, his manuscripts, and then he, like, can't eat food anymore, and then just dies. Yeah. Um, at, at the age of what? 42. Not that old. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm just reading some more of the intro to this volume. This guy kind of reflecting on the reception of it. And he had to have like, uh, in spite of or because of the great amount of time that Gogol spent abroad, he left Russia because of the reaction to the inspector general in uh, 1836 and did not return except for sojourns during the winter of 1839 and 40 and 1841 and 42 uh, until 1848. He was convinced that true morality resided in his homeland. 
if only its spiritual reality could be made manifest. Easter Sunday meant not only going to church, but embracing one's brother like a brother. So far as Goggle was concerned, he had offered that embrace in selected passages, and he had been rejected in spite of all the humanitarian and philanthropic aspirations voiced by Westerners and by Russian Westernizers. For Goggle, the West was already obviously a failure from the point of view of the true God and true morality, he says in Easter Sunday, one of his essays. One would think the 19th century would joyously celebrate this day, which is so much at the heart of its magnanimous and humanitarian movements. But on this day, as on a touchstone, you see how pale are all its Christian aspirations and how they are only in dreams and thoughts, not in deeds. If on this day one should embrace his brother as a brother, he does not embrace him. He is ready to embrace all humanity as his brother, and he does not embrace his brother. He is so separated from this humanity, for which he prepares such a magnanimous embrace, that one man who has insulted him, the one whom Christ commands him immediately to forgive, he does not embrace. Having been separated from humanity alone, clinging more conspicuously than others to the grievous sores of his spiritual unworthiness, more than any all others demanding compassion for himself, he pushes him away and does not embrace him. He achieves an embrace only with those who have insulted him in nothing, with whom he has never come into conflict, whom he never knew, and into whose eyes he never even looked. This is the kind of embrace a man of the present century gives to all mankind, for he thinks of himself as a real humanitarian and a perfect Christian. A Christian! They have driven Christ into the street, into the leper house and hospitals instead of summoning him into their homes, under their roofs, and they think they are Christians. Eh, well, uh, kind of, uh, applies, I think, you know, he's kind of got a point. Um, yeah. You know, not only about yeah. the 19th century, but also, I think, about the 21st, in a way. Well, you know, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm just scanning through right now uh, the letter from V.G. Belinsky oh, to yeah, Gogol one, in 1847, right. mm-hmm. and it isn't, I, I didn't realize this, but, you know, they were good friends, and actually, uh, I think Belinsky was the first Russian intellectual to publicly advocate for the economic theories of Karl Marx mm-hmm. yeah. way back in the uh, day. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, I mean, this letter is pretty, he rips into him pretty fucking yeah. hard <laughs> on like multiple levels that, you know, you don't understand. You've been accustomed for so many years to look at Russia from your beautiful far away. And who does not know there is nothing easier than seeing things from a distance the way we want to see them. For in that beautiful far away, you live a life that is entirely alien to it. You live in and within yourself or within a circle of the same mentality as your own that is powerless to resist your influence on it. Therefore, you fail to realize that Russia sees her salvation not in mysticism or asceticism or pietism, but in the successes of civilization, enlightenment, and humanity. What she needs is not sermons. She has heard enough of them. Or prayers. She has repeated them too often. But the awakening in the people of a sense of their human dignity lost for so many centuries amid dirt and refuse. She needs rights and laws conforming not to the preaching of the church, but to common sense and justice and their strictest possible observance. Instead of which, she presents the dire spectacle of a country where men traffic in men without even having the excuse so insidiously exploited by the American plantation owners who claim that the Negro is not a man, a country where people call themselves not by names, but by nicknames such as Vanka, Vaska, Steshka, Palashka, a country where there are not only no guarantees for individuality, honor, and property, but even no police order, and where there is nothing but vast corporations of official thieves and robbers of various descriptions. The most vital national problems of Russia today are the abolition of serfdom and corporal punishment and the strictest possible observance of at least those laws that already exist. This is even realized by the government itself, which is well aware of how the landowners treat their peasants and how many of the former are annually done away with by the latter, as is proved by its timid and abortive half-measures for the relief of the white negroes and the comical substitution of the single lash knout 
by the Caddo Three Tales. Wow. So he calls, he li- he likens the Russian peasantry to like African American slaves, but says yeah, well, at I mean, least they were basically like, slaves. Uh, you know, not much. in the same way as chattel slavery, but for you know. But without of, yeah, even having the excuse in the yeah in the different sense uh, yeah know, without even slaves. having the excuse so insidiously exploited by the American plantation owners who claim the Negro is not a man so they don't even they say you you are a man but we're going to enslave you anyways basically so he's saying it's even more vulgar uh, in a certain kind of I mean maybe not more evil but uh, definitely like just. Uh, yeah, contradictory bad. and <laughs> bullshit. Bad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. He just, he goes on and on. Yeah. Basically you don't know you've lived outside of Russia for years and your embrace of you, you suddenly you want to be trad and basically you're like running around with like JD Vance and Peter Thiel is kind of like what he's saying. And that it, it's interesting what he's saying Russia needs. Yeah, and damn, how he this, really went in hard. Like, uh, and at such a yeah. time, a great writer who's astonishingly artistic and deeply truthful words have so powerfully contributed towards Russia's awareness of herself, enabling her as they did to take a look at herself as through him in a mirror, publishes a book in which he teaches the barbarian landowner to make still more profits out of the peasants and to abuse them still more in the name of Christ and church. And would you expect me not to become indignant? Why, if you had made an attempt on my life, I could not have hated you more than I do for these disgraceful lines. Wow. Damn. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a lot. Yeah, yeah. He really he went also, in. Yeah. Interesting. So he says here that well, he's talking about how Russians are like an atheistic people by nature and stuff. So he says, uh, uh, sorry, this is just fascinating for okay, yeah. like. Uh, in the context also of like V. Uh, yeah. Uh, he says, proponent of the knout, apostle of ignorance, champion of obscurantism, and Stygian darkness, panegyrist of tartar morals. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. What are you about? <laughs> Look beneath your feet. You were standing on the brink of an abyss. That you base such teaching on the Orthodox Church, I can understand. It has always served as the prop of the knout and the servant of despotism. But why have you mixed Christ up in it? What have you found in common between him and any church, least of all the Orthodox Church? He was the first to bring to people the teaching of freedom, equality, and brotherhood, and to set the seal of truth to that by teaching to that teaching by martyrdom. And this teaching was men's salvation only until it became organized in the church and took the principle of orthodoxy for its foundation. The church, on the other hand, was a hierarchy, consequently a champion of inequality, a flatterer of authority, an enemy and persecutor of brotherhood among men, and so it has remained to this day. But the meaning of Christ's message has been revealed by the philosophical movement of the preceding century, and that is why a man like Voltaire, who stamped out the fires of fanaticism and ignorance in Europe by ridicule, is, of course, more the son of Christ, flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone, than all your priests, bishops, metropolitans, and patriarchs, Eastern or Western. Do you really mean to say you do not know that? Now it is not even a a novelty to a schoolboy. Hence, can it be that you, author of the Inspector General and Dead Souls, have in all sincerity from the bottom of your heart sung a hymn to the nefarious Russian clergy whom you rank immeasurably higher than the Catholic clergy? Let us assume that you do not know that the latter had once been something, while the former had never been anything but a servant and slave of the secular powers. But do you really mean to say you do wow, not know that our clergy... Wow, interesting right? approach. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah he's like, hey. Uh, uh, yeah. 
But do you really mean to say that you do not know that our clergy is held in universal contempt by Russian society and the Russian people? About whom do the Russian people tell dirty stories? Of the priest, the priest's wife, the priest's daughter, and the priest's farmhand? Does not the priest in Russia represent the embodiment of gluttony, avarice, servility, and shamelessness for all Russians? Boshlas. Do you mean to say you do not know all this? Strange. According to you, the Russian people is the most religious in the world. That is a lie. The basis of religiousness is pietism, reverence, fear of God. Whereas the Russian man utters the name of the Lord while scratching himself somewhere. He says of the icon, if it works, pray to it. If it doesn't, it's good for covering pots. <laughs> now th this Whoa. little section is nice. Next. Take a closer look and you will see that it is by nature a profoundly atheistic people. It still retains a good deal of super superstition, but not a trace of religiousness. Superstition passes with the advances of civilization, but religiousness often keeps company with them too. We have a living example of this in France, where even today there are many sincere Catholics among enlightened and educated men, and where many people who have rejected Christianity still cling stubbornly to some sort of God. The Russian people is different. Mystic exaltation is not in its nature. It has too much common sense, a too lucid and positive mind, and therein, perhaps, lies the vastness of its historic destinies in the future. Religiousness has not even taken root among the clergy in it, since a few isolated and exceptional personalities distinguished for such cold ascetic contemplation prove nothing. But the majority of our clergy has always been distinguished for their fat bellies, scholastic pedantry, and savage ignorance. It is, it is a shame to accuse it of religious intolerance and fanaticism. Instead, it could be praised for exemplary indifference in matters of faith. Religiosity among us appeared only in the schismatic sects who formed such a contrast in spirit to the mass of the people and who were numerically so insignificant in comparison with it. I shall not expatiate on your panegyric to the affectionate <laughs> relations existing between the Russian people and its lords and masters. I shall say point blank that panegyric has met sympathy nowhere and has lowered you even in the eyes of the people who in other respects are very close to you in their views. As far as I am concerned, I leave it to your conscience to admire the divine beauty of the autocracy. It is both safe and profitable, but continue to admire it judiciously from your beautiful far away. At close quarters, it is not so attractive and not so safe. I would remark but this. When a European, especially a Catholic, is seized with religious ardor, he becomes a denouncer of iniquitous authority, similar to the Hebrew prophets who denounced the iniquities of the great ones of the earth. We do quite the contrary. No sooner is a person, even a reputable person, afflicted with the malady that is known to psychiatrists as religiosa mania, then he begins to burn more incense to the earthly God than to the heavenly one, and so overshoots the mark in doing so, that the former would fain reward him for his slavish zeal, did he not perceive that he would thereby be compromising himself in society's eyes. What a rogue our fellow the Russian is. <laughs> so damn interesting yeah, lot, you, lot you going can on there we see like the westernizing streak in that because like it's very interesting to me how you know regardless of like the larger argument it's interesting to me how he's like saying well the catholic church like once was something and like you know the russian orthodox church is nothing and like a european when they become religious they you know it denounce like powerful tyrants Whereas when Russians become religious, they, you know, like support tyranny. Uh, and I autocracy. mean, you could look at like today, like, you know, Putler's embrace of the Russian Orthodox Church. I mean, I think that that's definitely a phenomenon that like, uh, despite the 
general sort of uh, invective against like greedy hypocrites and like worldly powers in the general like Abrahamic religions. I don't know if you can necessarily say that any one culture is like more prone to what Belinsky is describing because that definitely happens in uh, Latin Especially Christianity <laughs> and it happens in Islam as well. Yeah, like, I mean, look know, at Adrian I, I hate Vermeule, to say it, like... but it does. I mean, it, Vermeule's a great example. I mean, he's a monarchist and yeah, like plenty of people who are Catholics, like, worship authority, despite... And many don't, you know? And I'm sure that there are many Orthodox Christians who aren't like that, too. It is funny that, like, uh, Goggle's, like, kind of a convertidox, although it's not really clear, like, how much he truly changed. Like, Belinsky, I almost feel like some of his anger is at, like, admit, you know, like, that he feels, like, kind of, like, deceived in some way, and, like, he's like insisting... a little bit. He is insisting that, like, he's changed, you know, whereas I'm not quite so sure that it was really a change so much as, like, he... Like, you know, when he wrote that poem and everyone was, like, the sucks, like, he kind of switched to a different model of writing where he was, like, doing kind of personal essays, like, in the form of letters. And I think that that kind of, like, rubbed people, like, a very different way... But I'm not sure if like his, you know, if his perspective on the world, I mean, it's it's unclear. Like, you know, some people think that, you know, was he always yeah, past ideas. And some people think that he did have kind of a change. Um, But the translator of that uh, collection of his uh, book said uh, something interesting that was basically like uh, it is, I think, a distinct failure of the critical attitude that Goggle has only sporadically been listened to when he tried to speak for himself, as he did in selected passages. This has occurred, it seems to me, simply because he said things about himself and his work that most critics preferred and prefer not to believe. But surely what the author thinks he is saying is more to the point than what we choose him to say, T.S. Eliot notwithstanding. The reaction to selected passages in Goggle's day and since indicate which path critical opinion has chosen to take. In short, before we decide what Goggle's works signify, it behooves us to consider what Goggle thought they signified. So it is an interesting kind of take. Uh, he says, It was a straightforward communication of desire, the communication of one soul, as he might have put it, with another rather than literary artistry, the desperate attempt of a man who felt lonely and misunderstood to make his ideas and feelings clear. In this sense, selected passages constitutes an intensely personal record, as Goggle was himself aware. In his letter to Belinsky of June 20th, 1847, commenting upon Belinsky's article, which had appeared in the Contemporary, Goggle said that this was a book in which the personal spiritual history of man is involved, a man who is not like others, and in addition, a secretive man who has long lived within himself and suffered from the inability to express himself. Interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. interesting. I mean, it's like every single artist, like you could go down the list of people who it's that phenomenon of like feeling feeling cheated and then looking back on an artist's like entire career exactly like, yeah wait, like were they crypto like, fash the whole time it's yeah, like when, or like you know he like writes eric this clapton and then, makes like an anti-lockdown song everyone's like wait a minute like yeah was he always right wing but then also like the people who didn't like his stories and like you know everyone was like praising them they were like eh, i don't know it fucked. then like you know when this comes out he's like huh, i told you you know like fuck goggle <laughs> like i was right all along you know i mean yeah, I mean, I, everyone has, like, delighted in that type of thing where, like, you know, someone who everyone loved but they didn't like, you know, finally gets canceled, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, it's a, I feel like it's part of the phenomenon that happens uh, to him with this as well. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to read, like, some of, um, you know, his letters here. He, he, this is a kind of a short one that he actually writes about uh, the what we were kind of talking about, uh, this sort of European versus Slavic issue. Uh, This is from a letter to L. It's unclear who L is, but... 
Controversies over our European and Slavic origins, which are already, as you say, elbowing their way into the salons, indicate only that we are beginning to awaken, but that we are still not completely awakened. There is therefore nothing astonishing if a lot of nonsense is recorded on both sides. All of these Slavists and Europeanizers, or old believers and new believers, or Orientalists and Westernizers, don't know what to say they are in reality, since at the moment they all appear to me to be caricatures of what they would like to be. Uh, all are speaking of two different sides of one and the same object, without speaking that there is neither controversy nor contradiction between them. One comes too close to the building, so that he sees only a part of it. The other goes too far away, so that while he sees the whole facade, he does not see the parts. It stands to reason that the truth is more on the side of the Slavists and Orientalists, because they see the whole facade and therefore speak of the principal thing and of the parts. But there is also truth in the side of the Europeanists and Westernizers, because they speak in a quite detailed and distinct manner of the wall which stands in front of their eyes. Their mistake is only that, because of the eaves and crowning of this wall, they do not uh, see the summit of the entire building. I mean, the cupola and everything above. Some advice may be given to both, uh, to the one to endeavor to come closer, be it for an instant, to the other to retreat a few steps. But to this they will not agree, because the spirit of pride has seized them both. Each is persuaded that he is right once and for all, and that the other is a liar once and for all. There is more conceit in the side of the Slavists. They are boasters. Each imagines he has discovered America, and inflates his little seed into a turnip. It goes without anything that with their obstinate bragging they arm the Europeanists still more against them. Europeanists who have long been ready to retreat because they are beginning to perceive many things unperceived before, but they are stubborn, not wanting to concede to one with too many trumps. All these controversies would still be nothing if they stopped with salons and journals. But the difficulty is that the two opposed opinions, both of which are so immature and vague, have already entered the heads of many civil servants. I have been told that it happens, especially in those activities where function and power are in two separate hands, that while one works completely in the European spirit, the other resolutely endeavors to follow the old Russian way, consolidating all the former procedures contrary to what his colleague contemplates. In such a way, affairs of the subordinate officials themselves come to grief, for they no longer know whom to heed. Further, since the two opinions, in spite of their sharpness, are not exactly defined, it is only the fisher and the troubled waters who profits, as they say. A swindler may now find opportunity under the mask of a Slavist or Europeanist, depending on what his superior wants, to get an advantageous post and promote his swindles, either as a champion of the old or as a champion of the new. In general, controversies are the kind of things which, to which intelligent people of a certain age ought never, meanwhile, to pay any attention. Let youth get out of it by itself. That's its affair. Believe me, it is normal and necessary these progressive brawlers scream to their heart's content that the reasonable people may meanwhile reflect to their heart's content. Lend your ear to controversies, but do not meddle in them. The thought of the work which you desire to occupy yourself is full of good sense, and I even trust that you will accomplish it better than any other man of letters. I ask but one thing of you. Work at it, so far as possible, coolly and calmly. May God preserve you from temper and fever and the least of your expressions. Wrath is out of place above all in a matter of law, because it obscures and troubles it. Remember that you were a man who is not only uh, not young, but even advanced in years. Let a young man be angry, at least in the eyes of some people, he will be a picturesque spectacle. When an old man begins to get heated, he will simply become disgusting. <laughs> Youth will bear its teeth and ridicule him. Be careful they do not say of you, hey, that dirty old man. All his life he's done nothing but sit on his behind, and how he's blaming others for uh, not having done the same. From the lips of an old man, there ought to issue words of goodwill and not of shouting controversy. A spirit of the purest gentleness and meekness ought to imbue the noble speeches of an old man, so that youth will find nothing to say to him in objection, feeling that its words would be unseemly and that gray hairs are already holy.
interesting. Yeah. Uh, mm. So you can definitely see like the personal essay element in that. But yeah, I think that his sort of metaphor about the facade is very interesting or like the sort of, it's kind of the, the thing of like the, the blind men and the elephant, you know, but I feel like that applies to not only the issue of like Russia and its identity, but also to the conception of, of Goggle himself. Do we know anything else about his encounter with the devil that psyoped him into burning all of his papers? I'm not sure if I know anything else about his encounter with the devil, except that, I mean, I think he got like heated up and like burned them. Yeah, I remember reading about it, but um, I feel I'm not sure like what his actual like motive was in doing that. Was it an accident? Apparently there's no citation. I mean, Dead Souls does end in the middle of a sentence, but it's like still kind of debated whether wow. it's supposed to end in the middle of a sentence. I'm really not too sure. Yeah, where where that came from. But um, I don't know. I think this guy just got lost and he was, I'd say he was, he was like a patriotic socialist, but I guess not even a socialist. He was definitely, yeah, I feel like he definitely wasn't a socialist. Yeah, it's, there's some really interesting parts like uh, in this where... You know, you can see why Belinsky was, like, so upset. Our poets have begun to see the higher meaning of the monarch clearly, perceiving that he must at the end inevitably be made all love. And in this way, it will become evident to everyone that the sovereign is in the image of God, as our entire land knows. The importance of the sovereign in Europe is inevitably approaching this expression. Everything leads to it so the sovereign's sublime divine love for their peoples may be evoked. We have already heard the wails of the suffering caused by the mental disease which almost every European is now infected, floundering about without himself knowing how and from whom the help may come. The least touch only aggravates his wounds. Any instrument, any aid devised by the mind is too coarse for him and brings no cure. These cries will finally be so intensified that the most insensitive hearts will burst with pity, and a wave of unprecedented compassion will evoke another wave of unprecedented love. Man will burn with a love for all humanity with which he has never before burned. No one of us individually can conceive such a love. It remains in ideas and thoughts, but not in actions. Only those can be completely penetrated uh, by it on whom it was imp whom was imposed the inevitable law of loving everyone as one man, loving every person in his empire, each man of every class and rank, and making them all, so to speak, a part of his own body, all his soul empathizing with it, grieving, sobbing, and praying all night for his suffering people. A sovereign acquires that omnipotent voice of love which alone can be intelligible to a sick humanity and whose touch will not be cruel to its wounds, which alone can reconcile all classes and turn the nation into a harmonious orchestra. The people can only be completely cured when the monarch attains this highest meaning, to be on earth the image of him who is himself love. In Europe, it has not occurred to anyone to explain the sublime meaning of the monarch. The politicians, the legislators, and the lawyers have seen him from one side only, namely as the highest functionary of the state, put in this position by men, and they do not know how to behave with this power, how to show it in its own limitations, since because of the constantly changing circumstances, it is sometimes necessary to enlarge his prerogatives, sometimes to restrict them. The sovereign and his people are therefore in a strange situation in regard to each other over there. They regard each other almost as though they were antagonists, each desiring to seize power at the expense of the other. Among us, the poets and not the legislators have clearly seen the lofty meaning of the monarchy. In trembling have they heard the will of God to establish it in Russia in its legitimate form. That is why their sounds always become biblical the moment the word czar escapes their lips. Even those of us who are not poets perceive this, because the pages of our history speak most manifestly of the will of providence. It is in Russia that this power will achieve its complete and perfect form. 
every event in our fatherland, beginning with the totter enslavement, is visibly aimed at the assemblage of power in the hands of one person, in order that he may have the strength to carry out that famous conversion of the whole into an empire, to shock everyone, and after having awakened everyone, to arm each of us with that critical insight into himself, without which is it impossible for a man to analyze himself, to judge himself, and to raise in himself the same struggle against ignorance and darkness that the Tsar had raised throughout the empire, so that later, when every man burns for that holy struggle, and all are conscious of their strength, there will be one above all who, torch in hand, will direct all his people like one soul toward the supreme light to which Russia cries out. Okay. Yes. Um, Yes, he goes on talking about how uh, manifestly the will of God is shown the choice of the family of the Romanovs, not of another. How incomprehensible is this elevation to the throne of an adolescent unknown unknown to all, sorry, they were in the ranks of the most ancient families, and besides, valorous men who had just saved their fatherland, Pajarsky, Trubito, uh, Trubetskoy, and princes descended in a direct line from Rurik. The vote left them aside without one dissenting voice. Not one dared to claim his rights. So, Providence. That's interesting, because, I mean, God, it almost sounds like Dugan could have written it does. some of that. I mean, it's interesting. Yeah, it is really interesting, because, like, there's parts of it that... I get in a way like not the parts of like like believing in like an absolutist reign but I guess maybe in a way I mean I don't know if like any political system requires that to work I almost feel like maybe it's hard to say like yeah but certainly a monarchy does require that kind of uh mystical uh you know for lack of a better word or uh spiritual maybe dimension that he's talking about to work and like maybe for all his imaginativeness like he couldn't quite imagine like you know he like couldn't imagine like a change from form of government but you know he imagined like sort of a uh, emotional revolution that would like make the monarchy good rather than like you know uh overturning the monarchy make I him mean, a honestly, love monarch yeah i mean honestly <laughs> like i mean love is a very powerful like heuristic like intellectually one's oh, yeah, like very hard yeah. to wrap your name or, or your mind around i feel like but that's neither here nor there like uh but i do think it is interesting that like I mean, really, like, in certain ways, like, it's in a different language, but is it really that different from, like, you know, the dictatorship of the proletariat? Like, well, okay, you know, I was just going to bring that up. The hands of one person who, like, loves all the people, you know? Like, yes, what? yes. Uh, well, yeah. okay, I think, you know, I was going to say, like, if I were an anti-communist, but even still, <laughs> I, I think the, the, a thought passed through my head, and I, I forget which episode. I, I know I've, like, brought this up before because I heard it on another like social like communist podcast like years ago and I forget what book they're referencing but it was talking about kind of the 1930s and the the Stalin period and they brought up something that was very interesting to me and they were talking about the development of the so-called cult of personality around Stalin which the mm-hmm. um, <coughs> liar uh, Khrushchev um, <laughs> you know uh, told everybody about um, and um, another lying Ukrainian no just kidding uh, and so like what they said was kind of fascinating that that it wasn't as you know westerners are want to believe that like evil stalin like called everybody into his office and is like you will make portrait of me and put it everywhere people must love and then he plucked all the feathers off a chicken and told them that's how you create a perfect slave like (laughs) you know all that shit no in fact because i have read elsewhere that like stalin was at various points almost like a little bit uh, not unlike Jerry Garcia, a little sussed out by this adoration of him as like a celebrity, but like 
it basically kind of went along with it. Like he didn't stop people from doing well, it. Well, you know what? It's and interesting. Yeah. I oh, sorry. You, uh, well, here, sorry. So, yeah. Just to finish the thought here, uh, because what I guess the, the sort of um, the, the political, you know, uh, bureaucrats and functionaries and people in the Bolshevik party, like around Stalin had figured out that when they were going out, to the countryside in particular, and they were doing their like their literacy campaigns, trying to teach everybody how to read. You know, eventually they got to like 99% literacy, but that took a number of years. So kind of in the interim, what they ended up kind of saying is like, when we go out there, kind of like a bunch of like bespectacled DSA nerds and are like, excuse me, sir, like, have you heard about like the German ideology and like the writings of Karl Marx? And like, can I explain to you class struggle? Like Mm -hmm. that was not always the most immediately effective thing, especially when people needed to like go do their own reading to fully like grasp the essence of like Marxist theory and like, you know, Bolshevik ideology. So what some like local functionaries started doing was they copied a practice from the Orthodox days of, you know, having like religious processions where they would hold up icons of the czar and like icons of saints and things like that. And they started just replacing them with kind of iconic photos or illustrations of Lenin and Stalin. And that was very effective. You know, even though it wasn't explicitly religious, it was that you gave the people and who in many cases still, you know, hadn't learned how to read, weren't properly educated and, you know, certainly maybe not exposed to like Western enlightenment values or something. It gave them a, an embodiment of the dictatorship of the proletariat and the party and the country that you could sort of project your loyalty and your love onto. And then eventually over time, I think, you know, there definitely were like panegyrics written during Stalin's lifetime that were like, oh, bountiful, like servant of the people, like carrier of the torch of like liberation, like Mm -hmm. the greatest, kindest man who's like his love. And I mean, even also like when we went to the DPRK, I think we're very vigilant about not like trying to do some stupid like vice style dunking on them. But you got to admit the iconography of particularly Kim Il-sung but also Kim Jong-il, and I'm sure Kim Jong-un, they, they develop it over the last decade. But the way that like Kim Il-sung, his image is used in the DPRK and the way they talk about him, right? What, what do they always emphasize about Kim Il-sung? His uh, love for the yeah, people. Right. He yeah. loved, my second like, heart. Yeah. Right. His, my second heart. They'd wear yeah. it like all of our guides like wore the little pins and they would say, yeah, like this is our second heart. And they would always talk about like, you know, like even when Kim Il-sung died, the legend, I remember they told us at the DMZ was that like he was on a train and he was like fe- feverishly working on like the final deal to like bring peace and like end the Korean War and like reunify Korea. And he was like he was so close, but he was working so hard because he loved the people so much that he had a heart attack and like died and yeah. all this stuff. So I it mean, was Kim like Kim Il-sung was like uh at one point like he was i think involved with christian missionaries right or he encountered them like he was raised knew. actually yeah. uh, in deep irony he was raised presbyterian mm. uh yeah. yeah i remember reading that like he had learned a lot about like organizing from like his experiences with uh like christian missionaries um, well yeah, no, and that was also that was a minister right yeah that was extremely true of mao as well yeah, mao right. adopted certain ideas from christian missionaries and to, to make the rule of threes here, 
Stalin, of course. Where was Stalin right. educated? Yeah, it, like, he was a seminarian. I was reading he was an about, Orthodox seminarian. Exactly. I was reading about like his. It's like Stalin was in a way like a lot like Homa from V. Like if you read about like his uh, seminary studies, right? I mean, it wasn't in Ukraine, but you know, we all kind of hear about how he was like subversive or whatever. Like he was a dropout yeah. or whatever. But actually, mm -hmm. like it's not really true you know i found this article called like sergey and the divinely appointed stalin uh theology and ecclesiology and church state relations in the soviet union in the lead up to the cold war uh from two, uh 2018 which is kind uh -huh. of you know about how like what we kind of talked about like that stalin had to sort of make peace with the orthodox church like on the eve of world war ii uh after yes you know taking a more aggressive stance toward them right so yeah so he went to like a russian language seminary his mother like you know, fervently wish that he became a priest. In fact, there's a funny part in this article about like how like even when she was dying, like in 1937, when he was like already, you know, like the premier of the Soviet Union and like mm -hmm. he, you know, like had achieved all this like yeah, stuff, he, she was still like, it's a shame that you didn't become a priest. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But well, maybe, uh, maybe he did in a certain Yeah. Kind of well, way. you know, in fact, he was known like as like the priest, like in his revolutionary circles, apparently. So this author writes, um, at the age of 15 in September 1894, Stalin arrived in the Georgian capital, begin the next stage of his study. Let us return to that institution and see what he and his fellow students studied. The earlier years included both secular and theological subjects, or quote-unquote secular and theological subjects. Russian philology and literature, secular history, mathematics, Latin, Greek, church Slavonic singing, Georgian emeritan singing, biblical studies. By the final years, subjects became more theological. Ecclesiastical history, liturgics, homiletics, comparative theology, moral theology, practical pastoral work, didactics, church history, church singing, various aspects of biblical studies. Some subjects may have changed, but throughout the Bible and church singing were constants. The young Stalin was noted by his teachers for his phenomenal memory, subtle intellect, and ferocious reading, albeit not always about the prescribed variety. Sorry, not always at the prescribed variety. His marks varied over the years, ranging from high to low, especially from the middle years onwards when he became more involved with revolutionary groups. However, he was far from a dropout, as the copy of the final certificate, which Stalin requested four months after he left college, indicates. So, yeah, he... Uh, he studied at uh, the Tiflis Theological Seminary, and he uh, got excellent conduct, and he achieved the following results. Exegesis of the Holy Script, very good, four. History of the Bible, very good, four. Ecclesiastical history, good, three. Homiletics, good. Uh, liturgics, uh, Russian literature, very good. History of Russian literature, very good. Uh, logic, outstanding. Uh, ecclesiastical singing, Slavic, outstanding. Uh, that's a five. So he did pretty good. Psychology, very good. Four. Easter literature, I'm very good. I'm starting to notice a pattern here. Yeah. You know, wasn't also a Fidel Castro a Jesuit educated? Maybe he was. I don't remember. Uh, he was. He yeah. was. Definitely. Um, so, yeah, he read Greek. He knew intimately how the church itself worked. He uh, knew all the intricacies of theology and the Bible. More than no, a he was an Asiatic brute subjects. who didn't know he was stupid. Yeah. All his writing sucked. Like, I love how Trotsky has, like, the John Brockman, like, take on Stalin. It's like, well, you know, he wrote this manuscript. It was so awful. He couldn't get it published. And so he killed people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, 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 it's really true. But I don't know. Um, if you actually go and read Stalin, like... He's like he does have a preacher's sensibility in a certain type yeah. of way. People always forget that his main function for like decades, he was a, a kind of a radical labor organizer. I think in some mines in in Georgia and stuff. And he did uh, he did plan at least one successful bank robbery in his day. But like like he was a writer. He was like a post. Like he would write articles like advocating 
you know, for various like Marxist positions and things like that. Yeah. And he was known that was primarily kind of like his work. And he was a voracious reader and was, well, he didn't have the most highfalutin style. I wouldn't say he was a bad writer by any means. In fact, there's something almost like refreshingly like very to the point about he's very clear writer and like kind of no frills yeah. about this and this, stuff. Uh, this author actually argues that like there's a lot of influence from like theological concepts in his like philosophy of communism right like uh, he compares like the idea of like the delay of communism to like the delay of the Perugia or Christ's return like in some ways uh, this is probably the most interesting part he talks about like kind of the anthropology uh, the sort of Marxist anthropology of Stalin he says uh while Russian Orthodoxy assumed that sin entailed a deformation or a distortion of human nature, which could be restored through synergia, and while Pelagius argued in his 4th century debates with Augustine for the ability of human beings to do good works, Augustine stressed the reality and depth of sin and evil, and so much so that human beings could not undertake any work on their own. Marxists until Stalin took mostly a Pelagian line, assuming the inherent good of human beings once released from structures of exploitation and oppression. How does Stalin respond, especially in the moments of reflection during the tumultuous and highly creative 1930s? Human beings have hitherto unrealized potential for immense good, but also for evil never seen before. The emphasis on evil appears through the practice of criticism and self-criticism, the deployment of the terminology of sin, uh, gerecht and uh, sogreshit, <laughs> above all in the, in the purges, eliminating the cool acts of the class and the red terror. Crucially, the texts move from the easier identification of evil as an external reality to internal evil at both collective and individual levels. But this is only one side of the development of Marx's anthropology. The other is an intensification of the possibility of good. Here, uh, Stachovanism, and with its emulation, tempo, and grit, provided the first glimpse of a new human nature, with both which both realized the latency of workers and peasants and marked a new departure, let alone the quote-unquote affirmative action program with minority nationalities, or indeed the development of a quote-unquote domestic state in which the wholesale family and child care became state concerns. And we must remember that Christianity, too, is not concerned with an eternal human nature with its transformation. In other words, the development of Marxist anthropology was not merely an Augustinian eruption, with a profound awareness of the intensity of depth and depth of evil, but rather an intensification of both good and evil. Running through Stalin's thought is the profound sense that inherent goodness and the depth of evil should not be separated. They are necessarily connected. Without one, the other could not exist. No. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. He uh, gave and, everybody free education, but he killed a bazillion people. No. no. Yeah. And he says, uh, <laughs> yeah. he's, you know, uh, like just to clarify, you know, he, I think this is a good uh, caveat. He says, I'm not suggesting Stalin was a Marxist with theology at the forefront of his mind. Not at all, for he was seeking ways to develop his primary focus on Marxism in light of new circumstances. But as he did so, theological structures were reshaped in novel ways, which one would expect given the complex relationship between Marxism and theology in Europe and indeed Russia, let alone Stalin's own theological education. The, the theological resonances I have summarized may have been subtle and subterranean in some cases requiring a theological ear to discern them, but at other times they were overt. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, and then he kind of takes that into uh, the sort of di actual dialogue between uh, Sergei himself, who also kind of had to do a lot of like theoretical or like intellectual work to try to like justify the churches. Like, you know, there were some Orthodox who were like, oh, the Soviets deserve to be attacked because they are godless. But mm. Sergei had to basically say, you know, I think he actually did literally say, while remaining Orthodox, we remember our duty to be citizens of the Union, not only out of fear, but also for conscience sake, as the Apostle teaches us. And we hope that with God's help and with our common cooperation and support, we shall achieve this task. 
It is for a very good reason that the apostle admonishes us that in order to quietly and peacefully live in all godliness, we can either obey the legitimate authority or withdraw from society. None but armchair dreamers can think that such a vast institution as an Orthodox Church with its entire structural organization can exist peacefully in a country while walling itself off from the authorities. So, you know, like Some lending real their politic, support to... Orthodoxy yeah, it's there. very much real politic. But for real, yeah, why is it okay for, like, the Catholic Church to, like, operate and be all cozy with all these, like, yeah, capitalist countries and, like, um, Pinochet and, like, the Nazis and stuff? Yeah. But then if the Orthodox people decide to, like, render unto Caesar with, like, the Soviet authorities, like, they're corrupted, they're evil, instead instead of, like, that's probably the most base thing they ever did. Um, yeah, uh, like, on the day of the invasion, you know, this author is talking about how, like, by the late 30s, the League of the Militant Godless began to wide down with its publication ceasing by 1941 and its complete disbandment soon afterwards. The crucial turning point was the outbreak of the Second World War and the invasion of the Soviet Union by Hitler's Wehrmacht in 1941. Sergei was quick to act, publishing on the first day, uh, June 1941, of the, uh, sorry, 22nd June 1941, uh, he says, Orthodox Church has always shared the destiny of her people. Together with them, she has suffered in times of trouble and has been consoled by their successes. Nor will she abandon her people now. She gives heavenly blessing to their forthcoming heroic deeds. That's very funny. I mean, it really adds some layers to the old adage that there ain't no atheists in foxholes. Right? Yeah, it, it's it like when the lie. Nazis came coming. Who stepped up to the plate? Was it the League of Militant Atheists or was it the Orthodox? No, they like maybe, they fizzled out because they they fizzled out. There's no point. Like you know, for, at the uh, yeah, it's interesting. Like you know, they really went hard and like you know, the Muslims in Central Asia got their fair share of that too. Like with unveiling campaigns and all that's like you know, s- sicko stuff. But it like ultimately it was a failure. Like it didn't work. There was like a you know, I think there was a lot of like zeal and like you know, revolutionary fervor where like a new world is coming. Like but like that's. You know, I think people can get caught up in that type of thing, but who don't like kind of appreciate. So I feel like, you know, I think goggles kind of right in a way where like, you know, there might be like a way, you know, people need to uh, see the whole building in a way where like, you know, some could be, uh, I think, you know, Stalin in a way kind of maybe did, uh, did see the whole building. And it's interesting that like, yeah, yeah it, one of the most interesting things about this is that uh, the, like the idea of the mysterious retreat. Uh, did you ever hear about that? Like, um, no. Like, it was basically like a sort of, you know, it was almost like part of the cult of personality in some way, or like it was a common idea that like in 1941, you know, Stalin had gone on like a mysterious retreat and he had like reconciled with God. Like, <laughs> like, uh, yeah, this is from like, just I'm I just so looked on a Google books and uh, it says like on July 3rd, Stalin made his long awaited appeals to the people Comrades, citizens, brothers and sisters, warriors of the army and the fleet, I call upon you, my friends. Uh, that was how he began. Could have a standard revolutionary form of address. Comrades, a Christian form of address. Brothers and sisters had a service from his seminary days. Brothers and sisters, they, the people, were the ones who would have to defend the motherland. And in Finland at this time, church bells were sometimes heard. He declared the Great War a patriotic war, a holy war fought by the people against aggressors, like Tsar Alexander's war against the aggressor Napoleon. As if to support this idea, Hitler had launched his campaign on the anniversary of Napoleon's invasion. <laughs> the analogy was Fucking bound to inspire freak. hope. Yeah. Uh, in 1812, the Russians had retreated and even surrendered to Moscow, uh, even surrendered Moscow to the enemy, but they had emerged victorious. Uh, the party, too, of course, figured in his speech. He called on everyone to rally around the party of Lenin and Stalin, and no one saw anything strange in these words coming from Stalin himself. During his mysterious retreat, the ex-seminarist had decided to uh, involve the aid of God, who he had rejected. He had already heard that the Patriarch of Antioch had appealed to all Christians to come to Russia's aid. And they still it's, call yeah, it the it's great unclear, patriotic like, war what, to today. 
Yeah, it's unclear what uh you know what actually uh what actually happened, but it is a a, a was persistent he idea that yeah did he, he hear a voice. Yeah, that he he did hear some kind of voice. Yeah, he had a uh, he mysteriously kind of receded. I remember hearing that that uh, like there was a brief period right when Barbarossa started where Stalin kind of like went into occultation for a little while and people were wondering like, Oh, was he totally blindsided by this? And Mm -hmm. libs to this day will be like, he was such a bad leader. Like did the Russia would have beaten the Nazis twice as hard if it wasn't for Stalin, but like, shut the fuck up. Like you don't know that. (laughs) And like at the end of the day, I think they kind of marshaled every force they could. I think Stalin one of his great strengths was, you know, he's definitely somebody that made mistakes. Uh, yes, definitely, he definitely, definitely made, made some mistakes. For sure. But uh, was capable, uh, and I guess that people would look at it as like, he's just such a cynical instrumentalist that like he's, the blah, blah, blah. he's such a cynical pragmatist. He just changes his mind every five seconds. But I think it was like changing your mind based upon in a kind of a Marxist scientific way, like realizing that, being an edgelord atheist was not the way to like yeah. victory. Basically it was not the path towards communism it was like super edgelord atheism. And I mean, I kind of agree with him on that. And of course, you know, I can't blame the Bolsheviks for trying that given the record of the Russian Orthodox church, you know, in, you know, I mean, even Lenin said, I think we quoted it before that he believed that religion, religiosity and superstition would just sort of wither away gradually. And yeah. but in the meantime, in this revolutionary period, do not harass the religious. Like, do not go at don't be edgy Reddit atheists like going in and like telling them their God's fake and like they should and blowing up all their churches and stuff because that can only be counterproductive. And like you basically you know, it's like if we're correct, it will the problem will go away on its own and stuff. Yeah. And so I, then I think in the 30s, maybe out of a certain frustration and with the industrialization policies they had to roll out to prepare for the Nazi invasion, they took a stab at trying to smash a lot of religious traditions that they saw as, you know, uh, standing in the way as being roadblocks to like the building of communism. And I mean, in some cases, like certainly in like, I remember hearing that the uh, Ukrainian Orthodox priests were very fond of saying that like when during a collectivization of farming that like, oh, the Bolsheviks are going to come. They're going to make every everybody <laughs> sleep in a fucking tent with 30 people under a common blanket. You're going to have to share your wives, folks. And like told them they're all going to make you like, you know, hail Satan and like renounce God and like mm-hmm. be poly. And so everyone got like really. Fr- so there definitely were like Orthodox priests and stuff. And, and who knows, maybe maybe mo- some imams in Central Asia that uh, were maybe you know, they had an adversarial relationship with, oh, but I think in the sure. big, in and the big there picture, there were like shakes, uh, in central Asia who were like, yeah, treated, uh, badly or like, kind of like, uh, you know, banished or, you know, said the way, like, especially during that fervent, uh, period, you know, it was definitely in like a time where, yeah, it was definitely a time. Yeah. In the thirties, it was definitely, uh, a period where like, uh, you know, there was, uh, you know, not the best. Like, there were a lot of, like, you know, fucked up or, like, very short-sighted and, yeah, I mean, fucked up is appropriate, like, campaigns uh, in, in Central Asia around Islam, even though it's, it's more complicated than that. But, yeah, I yeah. mean, I think that, yeah, it's, it's, it's nuanced, but at the same time, like, as a lot of these things are, I mean, you can see it, like, now, like, in the reason, like, you know, it's not from nowhere that Muslims 
tend to have a negative association with the Soviet Union. That's the reason why. It wouldn't have to be that way. I mean, no, it's for like, sure. And it was well, I think partially that, due to China PSYOP and everything, but, you know, sure. like, uh, which <laughs> but they, I think that's you know. also part of the point is that yeah. it didn't have to be that way. And like, it doesn't have to be that way, yeah. like in the future or something like that. But that was, hey, you know what? That was a understandable, but like uh, overall, like a pretty clear uh, miscalculation, a mistake, yeah. basically that. Um, and so I think that it is inter- it's really fascinating to watch these uh, communist, these Marxist communist countries uh, start to kind of engage with the sort of like the psychological processes of religiosity and both in the direct sense of like like rehabilitating the the Orthodox Church, but also in the kind of sublimated way of like Stalin as like the avatar of the people or Kim Il-sung as the grandfather of the entire country or something like that. And and, And just noticing like how resilient and successful those strategies were as like, huh, interesting. And then that's why maybe it's such a shame that a certain politician had to go and lie so much uh, in the 50s <laughs> after they had built up they had built up this figure as the grandfather of like the nation and then he just goes out and you no, know, he's a piece of shit everything bad that ever happened was totally his fault like tear down all his statues he's a piece of shit and everyone around the world now has to like piss on his grave and it like shattered like the ideological and almost like spiritual cohesion perhaps there's definitely like a, a bit of a black legend like around stalin yeah i mean even though you could say there's a black legend around spain but doesn't make uh spain super uh you know doesn't mean that uh spain didn't do anything wrong but i think this is an interesting part from that essay that kind of like sums up a lot of this like this is kind of from the conclusion but uh he says we should not be surprised that sergey alexi and other leaders often refer to stalin as quote-unquote deeply revered and beloved by all, and as a wise, divinely appointed leader, who had become so through God's providence. Indeed, they expressed feelings of deep love and gratitude for his constant and wise attention to her, the church's needs. Was this nothing more than astute political maneuvering on both sides, or was it something more? We have only the texts and actions from which to piece together a possible picture, including rumors of a quote-unquote mysterious retreat undertaken by Stalin in 1941, as the Germans were rolling into the Soviet Union. As also the fact that the and uh, as also the fact that the Russian Orthodox Church continues periodically to issue calendars bearing Stalin's image. <laughs> um, wow, I mean they 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 reconcile. Yeah, uh, I mean having there's year. only twelve people you can have in a calendar. That's pretty, <laughs> it's, it's really something. Yeah, it is Even something in for January like the 2014 the, a Russian Orthodox Church slam for Stalin calendar. But, <laughs> Wait, they're still doing it? Yeah, as recently as 2014, oh. if I looked it up, there's an, a Radio Free Europe article which says <laughs> Russian Orthodox Church slam for Stalin calendar. Um, <laughs> wow. Okay. Wow. Interesting.
start to kind of wrap up here but i do think it's worth mentioning the filmmaking team behind v mm -hmm. in yeah, 1967 was a director right yeah uh, there are three of them only one of whom has uh, a wikipedia profile but kind of the most interesting of the three who was a co-writer i don't think he was a director he was a co-writer and i think designed a lot of the practical effects for the film was Alexander Petushko. Hmm. Yeah, right. Who, yeah, he's yeah. one of the only, like, the, one of the most famous people associated with it. Uh, mm -hmm. In that article that I uh, I was looking at earlier, um, he was, like, kind of mentioned as being, like, the main auteur behind 
this film. Yeah. And he, I actually didn't know about this guy, but it's interesting. He is most commonly referred to, though some say misleadingly, as the Soviet Walt Disney. Oh. Um, yeah. Did yeah. he do like a lot of cartoons? He did a lot of innovative work early on um, in the Soviet film industry with animation and also stop motion kind of stuff and then moved into live action films a little bit later in his career. I think he died in 1973 and he was born in uh, Luhansk, Mm. you know, very relevant to today. I guess people say it's erroneous to call him the Soviet Walt Disney because I guess his style of animation was a little yeah. different. They said he was more like Willis O'Brien or Ray Harryhausen. Ray Harryhausen was like a special effects guy. I don't know who Willis O'Brien was. Um, yeah, he was also like a stop motion pioneer, I guess. Oh, um, he did King Kong and The Lost World. Yeah, I guess that makes sense from based on like yeah. what I saw in V. It wasn't, you know, Space Jam. It was like more like King Kong type effects. No, totally, yeah. totally. And also um, we should say, you know, unlike the American Walt Disney, he had the good sense to like clearly delineate genres when <laughs> he decided to make like a spooky movie about witches and Satan. You know, it was actually a movie for adults instead of laundering it into like a cool cartoon for kids. Yeah, it's true. If Disney made that movie, it would have been like equally Freudian uh, and <laughs> like except there would have been like a cute animal sidekick um, uh-huh. and, and like he would have like kissed more, the witch and like married more her horrifying. at the end yeah. yeah it probably would have yeah. been more horrifying somehow like the sequence of like V coming in just yeah uh, don't give them mm-hmm. any ideas uh, <clears throat> no true true yeah, well if actually Pixar though, is listening to this podcast like we're we won't survive well, it, the next couple of years yeah, if we haven't been like assassinated yeah. after the Disney episode comes out, True, that's still yeah. to be seen. Um, but actually, it's funny that you bring up like potential Hollywood adaptations in relation to Petushko, because as a matter of fact, several of his movies were uh, purchased and then released in English dubbed versions in the United States during the Cold War. Hmm. including I think maybe I mentioned this once before because I found it I found a little like side note in some article and I thought oh that's you know Uh, maybe it was in 16 maps of hell or or related to that but uh, basically there was one of his big movies was Sadko Mm -hmm. which I guess was a sci-fi film and Roger Corman's film group uh, released that in 1962 under the title The Magic Voyage of Sinbad (laughs) So Corman's version reduced the total running time from 89 to 79 minutes, redubbed like it into English. I might have seen The Magic Voyage of Sinbad, not even realizing that it was a Soviet movie. Um, you might have, because I think, actually, The Magic Voyage of Sinbad was featured on Mystery Science Theater 3000. Oh, yeah, maybe that is And context. kind of poked fun at, but mm, they... No. And I guess it was, like, one of the more, uh, like memorable episodes of the classic series but people do point out that like the actually they used several three of his films the magic voyage of sinbad the sword and the dragon and the day the earth froze and episodes 422 Mm. 505 and 617 yeah wow they they slandered his name even though kevin mercy the voice of tom servo professed a love for the breathtaking visceral style of pachusco's films well, exactly. But then so basically yeah. like they were making fun of the American re-edited and redubbed versions, which mm. were a lot shittier. And also I remember where I read this because here's the other little factoid that's interesting. So for for the magic voyage of Sinbad, uh, a.k.a. Sadko, 
The script adapter that Roger Corman hired for this version of the film was a young Francis Ford Coppola. Mm. Yeah. So, and wow. I remember reading an article because that was one of Francis Ford Coppola's like early jobs was to edit. I don't know if he did any other Soviet sci-fi movies, but this is one he definitely did do. And that article mentioned that part of his job was to rewrite for the dubbing, like certain dialogue that mm. hinted too much at like class struggle or like quote unquote Soviet propaganda themes yeah. and stuff like that. So they, they managed to like, er- he had to go in and erase all of it for like the American version and just make wow. it more of a generic sci-fi movie. So, uh, you know, they say, you know, uh, art and ideology are totally separate. Yeah. I don't think so. No, yeah. I you see you want Corman. a political movie. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be interesting to know like what the process by which Roger Corman like got the rights to those Soviet movies and just I don't know, Roger Corman's so interesting in general and potentially so, I mean like kind of trained every big like new Hollywood director yeah. essentially. Mm-hmm. So this guy, I mean, he was a uh, a very big deal in the Soviet Union. And once again, like, I I guess they did have art that was uh, groundbreaking and interesting. And it wasn't all just like, no, it was all horribly censored. (laughs) Yeah, it was literally every single movie was about how great Stalin was. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And there's nothing interesting, nothing enjoyable. It was all hell. And they all had to wait in a bread line and they didn't have time to see a movie anyway. So that's true. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The other thing I thought was kind of interesting to bring up is I found an academic article from the 1950s about the Soviet interpretation of Google by Robert L. Strong Jr. Mm -hmm. It kind of goes i it's mean this would be yeah, early I'm like just hearing from it from 1955 i'm like leery going into like a well exactly sovietologist from the 50s but yeah i am curious I, what he has to say um, i was very curious to see what he had to say it's actually it's a sort of like not that bad um mm-hmm. necessarily but you know it's also it's he's writing it in a kind of liminal period because this is a couple years after stalin died but before uh khrushchev's um <clears throat> lying um secret speech in 1956 got out so he even mentions kind of ominously at some point he quotes a bunch actually he quotes something great about because he he opens by talking about the 1952 centenary of nikolai gogol's death which was widely observed throughout the Soviet Union. Mm. There were statues erected in various cities, new productions of his plays were staged, and even a number of films made their appearance. And there were a lot of a uh, great many biographical and critical studies of Gogol, uh, and you know his works were widely published and stuff. So he he mentions a kind of an interesting anecdote of uh, there was a huge uh, meeting at the Bolshoi Theater, March fourth, nineteen fifty two for the anniversary wow. you know with a huge like gogol portrait like you know like on stage and stuff he says the principal speaker was professor vv ermolov ermolov uh, hmm, interesting the most notable of the present day gogolian authorities he declared that marx lenin and stalin all entertained a high opinion of gogol and that uh Chernievsky regarded him as an inspiration of critical realism after linking the author to all that is best and most progressive in mankind, Ermolov concluded, quote, Gogol is our great ally in the struggle to oppose with ruthless satire all the forces of darkness and hatred, all the forces hostile to peace on earth. 
Other speakers followed, and among them were several foreign guests who asserted the popularity and influence of Gogol in their respective countries. At Gogol's grave and the Novodevice Cemetery in the Soviet, the Soviet novelist Valentin Katayev stressed the pertinence of Gogolian satire on the international scene. This speech culminated in, a, he says, the rather bizarre sentences of the following passage. But I actually think this is like some Gustavus Myers, like fire. Uh, so <laughs> okay. Katayev said, In the world of money and gain, Gogol's characters still live and indeed have grown to monstrous proportions. Every day over, the, quote, voice of America, Klostakov broadcasts his blatant and stupid lies to the world. <laughs> the, <laughs> the corrupt Wall Street shark and speculator, Mr. Chichikov, combs the universe for dead souls selling at bargain prices. That uncouth beast, Pentagon General Sobakevich, smashes other people's furniture and steps on their toes. The Atlantic Nozdrev utters terrible noises, and the Roman Catholic Korobachka rides forth to the world market <laughs> in her antediluvian Rolls Royce to make sure she got the <laughs> right price for the believers she is selling for cannon fodder. Oh, no, wow. Yeah, that's pretty good. Dope. I don't think it's bizarre yeah. at all. Well, I mean, maybe, but uh, it's good. But here's, yeah. the, this, is a, this is an extremely ominous passage, uh, the, or the uh, sentence following it. Both tone and content here remind one of anti-American cartoons which appeared during this period in the Soviet magazine Crocodile. Such remarks seem quite dated now after recent cocktail parties and picnics. No, wait, why Why do they feel dated? This yeah. is only 1955. Why? Uh, no. Khrushchev. Khrushchev <laughs> is, is why they seem quite peaceful coexistence, right? Okay, so on the same day, Pravda's lead editorial hailed Gogol as, quote, a patriot who foresaw the glorious future of his country, a herald of truth, a prosecutor of the vices of serfdom, a champion of the people's happiness, and a winged artist. The complicated and inconsistent aspects of Gogol's created life are somewhat begrudgingly admitted in the editorial, which hastens to add that these, quote, weaknesses and errors were merely incidental and not permanent. Concluding with a general pronouncement on Soviet literature, Pravda sounded one of the keynotes of the 1952 criticism, quote, our Soviet literature is the herald of a new communist morality. Its duty is to paint life in all its, in all its diversity and to unmask ruthlessly all that is stagnant, backward, and hostile to the people. We need our Gogols and Shedrins. Hmm. Such a claim, however, had not always been awarded Gogol by Soviet critics. In fact, this literary figure passed through a long and arduous rehabilitation before reaching his present high rank. And so he goes on to talk about like the different the journey that Gogol took basically through the early years of the Soviet Union and how like different, you know, intellectuals and literary critics and party people kind of uh, couched him and all the stuff that we basically talked about earlier with like Belinsky's letter, like denouncing him yeah. as like a simping reactionary dump mm -hmm. like. In, in that letter where Belinsky sounds much more like the harbinger of the Soviet age than yeah. the way he makes Gogol sound. Yes. Um, I mean, especially as like an advocate of Marx or, you know, someone who advocated Marxism. Although I guess like he kind of drifted between like a bunch of different uh, varieties of socialism throughout his career. Like I think he was into Saint-Simonism before that and like French utopian socialism. I think on the whole, he was more of an advocate of like that type of utopian socialism than the more uh conventional marxism i mean it's kind of like uh it's fucked up that like, you know in a way that he wrote that letter like yeah i'm trying what, to find letter uh, yeah i'm trying to find goggles reply because i am curious like how he responded like i mean I, I like if they were truly friends like that's really something like i mean i guess 
to say, I mean, he seems like he was very affected by uh, that book. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is well, the, actually, yeah. a little. Uh, just, yeah, while you're looking oh, sorry, that up, saying, uh, yeah. just a little, little fun fact about that letter. Apparently, uh, um, apparently, like after it was published, they had a bunch of meetings, and a young Fyodor Dostoevsky read the letter publicly, mm-hmm. like in support of Belinsky. And I believe that a bunch of them were arrested as a result of reading that letter. Wow. And that led to Dostoevsky being exiled to Siberia and wow. also almost executed. But then like, <laughs> it was like a mock execution and they Damn. sent him off to Siberia. Remember, we went to Omsk years ago on yeah. Trans-Siberian. And that was one of the only th- th- few things I, I think we were too lazy to go uh, visit where Dostoevsky lived, but I think it's like a little museum, yeah. you know, and like that, that's kind of the main thing about Ohms because like, oh yeah, Dostoevsky got sent there. So like that was right. why I was reading the, the Belinsky letter that, but then, but then Dostoevsky also went off on a weird kind of like somewhat monarchist direction and like was yeah. anti like having, but he was a little bit, he was really eclectic. Like yeah, he was very anti-serfdom, but also believed like kind of in the Orthodox church and yeah. didn't believe in a constitution. All, all these shit. people were weird, um, yeah. for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yes, they they really were. Uh, Dostoevsky is like a whole other like can of worms. Um, but yeah, he was definitely a weirdo, and he had like some yeah very uh, strange ideas that uh, definitely evolved over or you know maybe i'm wrong maybe i'm just like you know repeating bromides where like i've learned you know or i've learned at least that there's like a you know uh different sort of perspective on goggle where some will say like oh he changed but like others will you know say that actually his correspondence like confirms that he kind of was always like that and he just like you know thought it was his like orthodox christian duty to you know critique the flaws of society but when he well it is a really interesting question because it, you know, I mean, I think as as a lot of these Soviet critics made great pains to like do, they wanted to like kind of emphasize the good in Gogol and yeah. like the positive aspects of his legacy. So it's an interesting question with artists, especially in today's age where there is a kind of ambient feeling of an artist has to represent the right values in yeah. their work. You know, like that's become very maybe it's turning again now, but I feel like definitely in Hollywood over the last like five years or so there's been an, a push towards maybe slightly more didactic, kind of moralistic, like wearing its political values on its sleeve kind of approaches to art and storytelling. I mean, I think you mm-hmm. see it in the art world as well and probably yeah. to some extent like in music. And at the same time, like, I mean, just as we could look at, I could point out probably a bunch of examples of people having a quote, correct political ideology producing totally stagnant shitty art that doesn't resonate in a weird way sometimes you could like observe the flip side of maybe like a creator creates something that taps into certain truths but their actual politics are kind of like insane and all over the place and yeah, like I think sometimes that's definitely like fucked true. up i mean i think that very few people can like the domain of politics is like so vexed and like fraught and like amorphous and like it's, I don't even like really know, like what is politics? You know what I mean? Like it's kind of like everything. True. It's just about like participation in society to have like a theory of politics, like that, you know, addresses itself to like the exigencies of the time in like a, uh, like a truly systematic way, like is so like difficult. And 
Like, I wouldn't, you know, I think we talked about on the, on the show, like, in the past, like, I would not put myself in the position of someone who has, like, you know, political solutions. Like, I would not want to be, like, a politician or whatever, like, except insofar as, like, everything that you do in the public sphere is political, I guess. But, sure, like... I mean, yeah, it's but uh, also like as an artist, like what is the responsibility? Yeah, of an exactly. Artist? It's like it's weird, like to have like a truly systematic political theory that like makes sense. Like it's very hard, especially if you are like an artist or like maybe you like excel or produce like transcendent work in some area. I mean, I feel like that is true of uh, like I mean, Goggle is an extreme example where like he wrote things that are like really great. Uh, in one field, but then, like, you know, maybe his policy. But, you know, I think that, like, again, like, from... He had a certain, like, artistic intuition that, like, maybe, like, the bare, like, sort of skeleton of what he was saying, like, seems crazy. But I also feel like, you know, and I I feel that way about a bunch of people who, like, you know, the... I the Maybe the, like, the program, like, its bones, like, is, like, weird or, like, I think that, like, it's impractical, but it's, like, you know, like, it gets at something. I mean, ultimately, I feel like, despite what Goggle might have said, like, one person, it's unlikely that they will, like, be able to synthesize, like, in themselves, like, you know, uh, the answers to any given political situation. But, like... Well, it's hard enough for somebody like Lenin to do it. Yeah. uh, And he's not even tasked with creating interesting art. He, like, was just focused on politics. You know what I mean? So it's, like, an art... like. I think that's like maybe too much to ask of any artist that they embody some kind of like perfectly cogent and yeah. clear. I mean, I almost uh, find myself thinking, yeah. I mean, no podcaster is like on the level of Goggle, but like I definitely find myself thinking of podcasters who like start out, you know, just like being like entertainment, but then like for whatever reason believe that they're like political leaders and then like become unbearable. So or like comedians, yeah, um, yeah comedians in general. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, going a little further back, the the idea of yeah, somebody just telling jokes actually being like the flag bearer of like yeah. you know progressive revolution kind of thing, and ugh, yeah, yeah, it's not exactly, but you know at the same time, I mean, the Russian intelligentsia was you know very fiery and active you know around yeah. the time of Goebbels' life and i do think that because the annoying thing is like when you start to talk about this subject in like today's context it often what you often hear and maybe kind of like the uh the the joe rogan side of the spectrum hmm. or you know people like fellow travelers of that elk or people that are like very about like free speech just saying like like art has nothing to do with politics. Like art and politics yeah. should be separate. And it's like, I, I get what they're saying. I Ian Miles Chong tweet. That's like, you probably think RoboCop is political. <laughs> like, yeah, like, uh, well, yeah, that's yeah. why it's good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's like, yeah, I, I think it's like, it, it can be sometimes, I don't know, tricky to hold uh, both these ideas in your head at the same time. But there's the idea that everything is political and also yeah. art doesn't need to be like didactic didactically political and it can even i mean sometimes a a piece of a a work of fiction or a piece of art or something can kind of like stand on its own regardless of whether you know or don't know anything about the creator's politics like you could draw something political from it without there being like an overt political message it can sort of a depict a vibe you know what i mean like you know, we're all, we're all the way back in vibes discourse, but yeah. I think that Gogol presented a vibe of like <laughs> kind of like the 
the ubiquity of corruption, both moral and kind of business and government and things like that. And like shadowy forces that were like conspiring to like, you know, destroy like young idealistic people. But I think vibes are very important. Like you can't neglect vibes. And I think that like to like, I think that like sometimes, yeah, like people's attunement to vibes. Like uh, I haven't been able to find like, I'm not sure like if, you know, uh, if it was ever published or fully translated even into English. But, you know, I did find this one interesting passage where, you know, Gogol uh, said to Belinsky in reply, you know, he says, the age at hand is one of rational consciousness. It weighs everything, taking all sides into into consideration. It would have us look about with the many-sided gaze of an elder and not show the hot impulsiveness of a knight of past times. We are children in the face of this age. And, you know, yeah, I mean, it definitely had a point. I mean, like, I don't know, like, exactly how uh, prescient that was. Like, I feel like the signs of the hour were, like, at hand as they are Mm -hmm. now. But, like, basically, (laughs) I don't know, uh, yeah, like, being, like, kind of uh, in line with uh, every like orthodox thought, and you know, I guess ironically, it was his in his own sort of clique. He defied orthodoxy by championing <laughs> orthodoxy. Um, yeah, literally. <laughs> but um, yeah. I guess I mean it's kind of a shame in a way. Like I understand why Belinsky was like so fired up, like being a young Hegelian, like blah blah blah. I think it, it's a shame that like he wouldn't. It, he loved his like artistic work so much, but like he wouldn't like think about like the positive like you know look for something of value in selected passages you know what i mean like that maybe there were like some insights to be had even if like you know it was overall i I feel like you know my my brother you're misguided yeah even like even i feel like even in a way like the heroization of goggle as like this great man who wrote like government inspector and like spoke to our times like that kind of you know, to see someone who was actually, like, imperfect or, like, had some, like, bad ideas or something. <laughs> like, I think the sort of disconnect between, like, the image of him and, like, the reality that maybe came into focus when he read that. That's probably like, what really did him in, is that he was elevated on a pedestal to begin with as yes. a great, like, liberal hero. And then yes. he took this reactionary turn and everyone's just like... <gasps> You know, and they almost overcompensate by being like, we have to destroy you now because you've been... But in a way, like, yeah, uh, sorry, I don't mean to constantly interrupt you as, uh, you know, or anything, but... No, it's all um, right. But in a way, like, it kind of, like, they fed it to... Because he did sort of have that, in a way, he did have kind of, like, an exaggerated opinion of himself. I read this one article about his relationship with... uh, What was the name of the guy? Alexander uh, Ivanov, who was, you know, he's known for, like, one painting which is a painting of, of Jesus. Uh, he was pretty good friends with the goggle. The appearance of Christ before the people is his, his famous painting, you know, also known as the apparition of the Messiah. It's a, it's a good painting if you like figural art and uh, all that uh, haram stuff. But, <laughs> you know, and in fact, I think goggle is actually, and Ivana are actually both drawn into the painting. Oh, the, really? Yeah, if you look right up in the, if you look at the painting, like right in the, where Jesus is, like, there's a guy kind of in an orange robe and uh, who's kind of, like, looking to the the left, like, towards Jesus. Oh, yeah. That's like, in the distance a little yeah, bit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. Right near Jesus. Um, oh, that is that Google? Yeah, I think so. Um, oh, I think wow. it's supposed to be Look at that. That was an interesting painting. Um, yeah, so they were pretty good friends, but, like, they both kind of had this theory, like, of how the poet needed to, like, excel. There's an article. What was the name of it? I'm trying to... Uh, 
Alexander Ivanov and Nikolai Gogol, the image and the word in the Russian tradition of art as prophecy. And I thought this was interesting because it kind of talks about like, the importance of like sight in uh, their theory of like prophecy and their kind of shared uh, esoteric explorations. I'll just like read the abstract maybe. The pervasive Im Russian image of the writer as a prophetic figure is generally regarded as a verbal contract rooted and developed through literary tradition. And indeed, there are ample grounds to support such a view as the image can be traced through a chain of text from the late 18th century onwards, originating in the writings of Gavrila uh, Dezavin and Mikhail Lomonosov. It first uh, became widespread during the period after the Napoleonic Wars leading up to the Decemberist Uprising, when it flourished in the verse of Vasily uh, Zukovsky, uh, Fedor Glinka, uh, Wilhelm uh, Kiokelbecker. Wow, okay. Uh, Kiokelbecker must have been, uh, you know, some uh, Muslim lineage. But uh, Nikolai Yak, uh, Yazikov and Alexander Pushkin. Its subsequent metamorphosis from an agent of social and political change into a religious theurgic force was largely facilitated by Nikolai Gogol. But at the same time, it reached Fyodor Dostoevsky, uh, Vladimir uh, Solovev, and the symbolists and their successors. And it had already become a canonical image, embodying an uncontested literary quote-unquote truth. And uh, yeah, some other interesting things about, like, because some people have actually kind of speculated about the meaning of V as, like, kind of, uh, some people say, like, oh, it's Ukrainian slang for V, the word that is. Like, some people say it's Ukrainian slang for, like, eyelashes or something like that. A lot of people say it derives from uh, videt, like the Russian word for seeing. This author talks about uh, vision that way a lot. Like uh, a particular interest for our topic is the fact these two forms of prophetic experience are frequently combined, usually in a particular sequence. The prophetic vision is commonly followed by a verbal message. Indeed, the act of seeing is often presented as a preliminary stage, preparing the prophet to hear the voice of God. It is only after Jacob has seen the vision of a ladder connecting heaven and earth that he hears God speaking to him in his dream. Joseph first has two vivid dreams. His brother Shees bow down to his sheep. The sun, moon, and eleven stars all bow down to him, and then gives a verbal interpretation of what he has seen. When Moses first sees the burning bush, he says, I will turn aside now and see this great sight. Why the bush is not burnt. The narrative uh, continues, and when the Lord saw that he turned, uh, uh, I guess in Hebrew, and he turned aside to see, God called out unto him into the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. In this last example, the emphasis is placed in the prophet, by the prophet on the purposeful act of seeing while awake, not dreaming, as in the cases of Jacob and Joseph, that appears to be a necessary prelude to the direct verbal communication that follows from God. So, you know, talks about this uh, a fair amount. You know, there's many echoes of this idea in Russian verse, like, uh, you know, uh, the echoes of Isaiah in Pushkin's uh, Prorok. Uh, or the prophet. Yeah, I found like the, the, the verb to see and the analysis of it here, like in the uh, uh, idea of prophecy, like in the biblical tradition to be uh, interesting. You know, he says uh, the examples, if this is in fact a, a man and not a woman. Yeah, Pamela Davidson, so does she, sorry. So she says these examples all appear to suggest the primacy of the visual element over the verbal with regard to the initiation of the prophetic state. Indeed, since the verb to see in Hebrew also carries the more general meaning of to perceive or to apprehend, it connects with the act of understanding, a link also suggested in Russian by the cognate verbs videt, to see, and videt, to know. Accordingly, after hearing the Ten Commandments at Sinai, the Israelites can see uh, the thunderings and the voice of the horn. Even a verbal communication can be seen in this sense, as in the word that Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. 
However, the fact that the vision rarely stands on its own is almost invariably accompanied by a verbal communication indicates a need for a two-stage process in which the vision first engages the attention of the prophet and deepens his understanding, but remains incomplete with the fuller verbal elucidation that follows. And, you know, this is all kind of about, like, this sort of uh, vision that Gogol and Ivanov had of themselves as being, like, prophets for, like, a new Russia, where, like, you know, Ivanov would create this amazing image that he then would present to the Tsar, and then Gogol would, like, ascend to be like the czar is like sort of Dugan almost and uh, <laughs> you know like give him the poetic vision of like what Russia's future had to be but it's a also, very like John Train strategy yeah exactly uh, uh, like, I'm gonna take so, down Nicholas II in one one song one verse yes <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> but yeah but so they were kind of like caught up in this idea and goggle you know he wrote some like crazy letters where he's pretty mean to ivanov and basically says like the reason why your painting's going so slowly is because you're not christian enough and things like that so he was in a way caught up in this but i almost feel like the praise that he got from those liberal circles i think sort of stoked that in him because he was put in this position and like I get it in a way like you don't want to just like tear people down and like keep entertaining that like, you know, giving them what like that almost it makes you suspicious of your own work that is popular almost, you know, no, like, it, it is interesting that yeah. that that spiritual advisory had was able to play upon a kind of concept of like Christian guilt to make him feel bad for having written satires. Yeah, like basically satirizing the state and all these institutions he made him feel like it was sinful like he was just filling the world with negativity i could see that both as maybe some kind of like psyop to like neutralize google but also maybe a kind of a general thing like an interesting tension in creating art and being especially being held up by these western pro kind of westernizatia type people as just the ultimate like badass critic fearless satirist that slays with facts and logic and all this kind of stuff and he really was always i mean maybe that's the thing that people maybe didn't understand and were so repulsed by was there was always something a little more like liminal and spiritual yeah. uh, even with his original satire it wasn't just it wasn't just kind of like a secular liberal argument against zardom mm -hmm. or serfdom or something like that he was getting it kind of deeper, murkier, spiritual kind of issues. And then mm -hmm. maybe that led him into some like strange directions. Maybe he got a little lost in the in the foggy forest along the way and yeah. ended up came out like supporting the yeah. know, as many orthodoxy. like great artists and intellectuals do. Like generally I don't know. I generally I feel like people who like rise that kind of like historical celebrated status, like a lot of them are they're not all like one way and they never like really fit into like a convenient or like comfortable box in a way, you know, there's things about them that you don't want. Yeah. I think they also go through phases. They're, they're yeah. kind of, you know, they're like ident identity ramblers. Like they, they bounce to like different things. I mean, yeah, look at somebody like Bob Dylan and we talked about recently and like how he recoiled from being like a political, like voice of a generation person and then, kind of went through the 70s and then was like, I'm a born again Christian. And then like, yeah. wait a minute. No, I reconverted to Judaism. I'm a Zionist now. And then, <laughs> like, and then when he's like 70 years old is like, they killed Jack Kennedy. And he's like, what? Yeah. Now he's like a, like a JFK pilled conspiracy theorist, <laughs> like leftist again. Like you just can't, like, I, I mean, without yeah. giving them all too much credit, I would say if you're going to give any sector of society or like occupation, like a little bit of leeway to like, 
say some dumb shit or get it wrong, like artists are probably it kind of comes to the territory. Yeah, a little and the bit. thing is, like people, like all people go through phases in a way. But I feel like everyone gets things wrong. It's just a matter is like of whether you're getting everything wrong at the same time as like your social circle, like getting the same things wrong yeah. at the same time. Because like if you're getting like you know you might even be right, <laughs> like but if they're all still wrong the people like around you like your supporters or you know your big fans like you know they yeah. Might, yeah or maybe but. you you might be wrong for like the right reason if that makes sense yeah. like i feel like kanye west freak out and kind of uh, i won't even call it a freak out but like his his outburst of like basically saying like yeah i would have voted for trump or like i'm gonna go to the white house or I'm going to say that like the 14th amendment like is a psyop or something like, like yeah. I, I don't think it was motivated by like him actually being like, I am a reactionary, like, you know, and like wake looking in the mirror and like identifying as such. No, but I like think, yeah. it was coming from a right place of like, I, I don't want to just go along with this kind of fake ass. I'm with her kind of uh like stop drum vibe that was going on. Well, like I think 2016. it is in a way similar. Cause I think more than anything, like part of what is contributing is like the phenomenon of celebrity like itself like being like a public figure where yeah i think there is like an impetus to like say the right thing or the good thing to like use this like use your privilege you know for something mm -hmm. good you know and yeah. i think that like you maybe like people see like your art as being good but like maybe you doubt that because i mean for myself i feel like if like everyone loved something that i was doing then I would immediately become skeptical of it. And I think that's something Same. that a lot of people have like experienced a lot, you know, a lot of uh, people who have like had like a bunch of uh, fame over something like not everyone. Some people are like, well, I'm great. But like, uh, I think a lot of people have that meltdown where they're like, everyone loved this. Like, what the fuck? Like that is sus, you know? <laughs> like, what? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, um, yeah, no, exactly. And then it almost like it, it's out of your control at that point because people take from it what they want to take from it. And yeah. while you do have control like over the creation of the process, like you never have total control over how it's perceived. And yeah. I mean, that's something. Yeah. I, and I that perception, that, you know, that brings back around to like, you know, this. Yeah. The connection of like perception and speech like the. You know, back to V itself, you know, like there he is. Isn't that interesting yeah. that V that 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 uh coma is is the the thing that does him in at the end is they pull up the eyelids and yeah. V sees him. Yeah. And then all and the goblins can get him. That he sees V and that V oh, like true. Like, yeah, that V yeah, the sort of uh the exchange of perception, right? Because V can't even though the eyelids are pulled up. V can't see him until he ignores his inner voice uh, oh or like, God. you know, his intuition and looks at V only then. This can is v the see ultimate. Him. Yeah. Like, don't read the comment section. Don't listen to the haters. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, you definitely don't read the comment section. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting to think about it in terms of like perception or I mean, I feel like it becomes very interesting in the cinematic context because it ties in in many ways, like the act of of viewing itself. But yeah, I mean, there's also. It just resonates so well with that idea of like prophecy that like Ivana Van Gogh came up with, like where there's sort of the the word and the connection with speech where like, uh, you know, even like the indication almost because then V like points at him and is like, there he is. And then all the ghoulies <laughs> like, you know, is. they go get him. Yeah, exactly. Eche Oma. Yeah. You know, I guess that's what happened to him. Yeah. The, yeah. The gin of celebrity was like floating around him and then he looked at it and then... Yeah, I Go mean, 
it makes you very vulnerable. I mean, you know, just like, I mean, even Jesus himself, speaking of Christianity, uh, he was tempted uh, by Satan, right? With like, yes, he was. you know, once because he had, you know, the adoration of certain people, you know, he offered him like the rulership of the world and everything. Yeah, and I guess so. he rejected, he burned all the devil like trick. Yeah, him so exactly. I understand why he would like freak out and start burning, all, like, you know, burn all of his manuscripts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, maybe felt the same way about himself that he felt about Ivanov, that he wasn't Christian enough. And that's why he was having trouble writing. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think I think that way sometimes, you know, I always think that like if I'm having trouble writing, I'm like, the law is mad at me. <laughs> like, I need to pray more. Uh, it's, good, <laughs> it's a good instinct. Uh, I'm sure it's been, you know, I'm sure a lot of people have leaned on that. You got to do what you got to do also to to get in the mood, right? Hopefully I won't decide that like any of my dissertation is uh, shaitanic and have to burn some of it because, uh, you know, got to, got to get that in, but, (laughs) (laughs) um, you know, uh, for better or for worse. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to keep it on hawk. Um, But yeah. Always keep it on hawk. Yeah. Yes. Um, All right. So I guess, you know, we can leave it there. Um, Yeah. There's some thread. There's some books I didn't get to read about, like uh, that I found about censorship in Soviet cinema. That yeah, try to take a more nuanced approach because it is interesting. The last Mm -hmm. thing I'll say is that I'm like so bummed out in a way that this is the only Soviet horror movie because I feel like there is a lot of untapped potential there to basically like because you could have a kind of um, Marxistly woke horror genre. I think that could happen not to say that they didn't kind of somewhat get into it in other genres like sci-fi and, and things like that but i think that they sort of like conceded the territory of the horror genre to like the europeans the the americans the japanese etc it's like everywhere it's to the capitalist world basically and i think that part of that though i don't think it's as hard-lined as like they just totally like banned anything superstitious because there were obviously loopholes as this movie, you know, embodies. But I think that if they had been, I don't know if people had been a little more into or tapped into the idea of like portraying kind of like capitalism as like a shaitanic force or a supernatural force or something like that, like uh, dealing in those kind of metaphors or like, it, you know, imperialism kind of being like a I mean, kind of supernatural I've force. I've mentioned this, this movie before, but another film that another so late, much later Soviet film, uh, I think that might even been on like the the cusp of the, the collapse of the Soviet Union is the movie uh, like Musliman. It's like just called like oh, Muslim. Yeah. yeah. yeah and there's like yeah. an amazing surreal like shaitanic pig like representing capitalism that like appears at one point <laughs> in that movie. It's like amazing. But a very similar like kind of like horrifying surreal vibe to, to V. Yeah. Because just, like, it, you know, just as a proselytizing to those, you know, peasant villagers and needing like a big portrait of Stalin to like carry around, like I think for the general world audience, especially in capitalist countries, like even if we can technically read, it's not like we're doing a lot with it and we're all psyoped into, you know, never thinking about these things. So in a way, it's almost like creating a, ver- you know, a modern updated version of a folk tale to express like a greater truth about the more material world that we live in and and also try try to embody abstractions in this like yeah. cinematic language. Like something like capitalism is so abstract and difficult to like really get somebody to like visualize it as an entity that kind of has almost like its own like autonomous logic that permeates everything 
it's really, you know, you can get into it if you read enough, you know, marks at all. But, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words, isn't it? And yeah, I, I, I think mean, there, there's room there that maybe is like not been for all the horror tropes that have been mined to death. I feel like that's one that still has not been mined as hard, maybe as it could be. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, like this, again, kind of coming back around to uh, the beginning where I think that like the definition of like horror is like complex in a way. I think that it's something I mean, it's really this is going to be a very long conversation because I mean, I feel like we've said before that what's sort of a standout feature of like the horror genre as we kind of like reflexively defined it. I think we talked about like in our discussion of the exorcist and and other films in in that vein, like it's the genre through which like we kind of engage with that in the same way, you know, just Freud's uncanny, you know, where he relates that to uh, the like repressed uh, beliefs of the primitive past or whatever, you know? So like in the quote unquote secular society, uh, this is like a, one of the primary mediums which we engage, like the themes of like what is considered like in the sphere of, of religion, uh, which mm-hmm. really is like a very important and like uh, it, like inalienable human instinct, like or you know is something that is like deeply ingrained in the way that human beings relate to the world. So I think that like yeah, there was kind of an in, like a, a under. In this, under the Soviet Union, like, there was kind of a, a tendency not to, like, think of Gogol as, like, a spiritual seeker, even though he, like, really, really was. Uh, like, or, or, like, obviously. apologize for it. Be like, look, yeah. like, he wasn't perfect. He yeah. was a spiritual seeker. <laughs> yeah. Know, or something like that. Um, but, yes. You know. But I feel like that is, like, it's a very important thing. I mean... There's, again, like, there's many ways to uh, engage it. Like, you can also read, like, theological literature in the same way that you can read, yeah, you can read the Quran in the same way that you can read, like, Marx and Lenin. But, yeah, as you said, people don't necessarily do that. And I think that the popular literature, like, whatever form it takes, has always been, like, a way to explore these ideas. So, for sure, yeah, I think that even if you look at literature, like, in, like, hagiographies or, like, or, you know, yeah, like, you have old folk tales, like, the things these are based, like, they often, like, have elements that could be described as, like, horror. There was actually, there was an article in The New Yorker that my mom sent me, and I didn't mm-hmm. fully read it, but, and I'm not sure, like, if it was fictional entirely, or if it was, yeah, it is fiction, but it was basically about, like, uh, it was, like, the life of a guy from Afghanistan, I think, who I only, like, glanced at it, who eventually, like, you know, immigrates to the United States, like, in the form of all the jobs that he's had and, like, his jobs when he was in Afghanistan. Like, his duties include, like, reciting verses from the Quran to dispel jinn, uh, borrowing fruits from neighbors' <laughs> orchards for sustenance and things like that, you know, uh, protecting sheep uh-huh. from bandits, witches, wolves, rapists, demons, you know, so wow. yeah, it's a, uh, I don't know what my, my point was with that. I was just thinking about like my mom and her text to me, but it's a, it's an important uh, aspect of important uh, occupation. Yeah. An important uh, occupation. Protector. From yeah. Gym protection. It's an important occupation and mm-hmm. yeah, it's something that we need to be uh, in touch with in conclusion watch out for Jan. Um, yeah, I just <laughs> yeah. like totally <laughs> forgot what my point was, but there you go. Something about, I don't know, the politics of uh, art or something. I forget. What yeah, I guess about. so. <laughs> um, you know, I guess, yeah, like the popular literature is an important way to like engage with these things. And yeah, I was yeah using that, horror, you know, uh, you can read uh, theological literature, but people, as you said, people tend not to. Yeah. Horror is kind of the name that we get to these things. And like oftentimes, yeah, like, uh, oh, yeah, that was kind of my point that like the 
religious domain is often concerned with those types of things that like are what like are considered horror tropes like the things that were mentioned like uh witches bandits you know like uh, oh yeah wolves. yeah for sure yeah exactly uh, exactly so, yeah, no that's, there's a natural that's overlap. what i was getting and, at there and even in a lot of horror stories <laughs> yeah. there's often like a moralistic dimension or like it gestures at a religious thing just yes. as like religious stories often have an element of of what we would classify as horror in them there's a natural crossover there Yes. Right. And yeah, it's, I mean, again, this is like a classic essay conversation. And we're, I mean, we often say problematic things or, or things that people object to themselves. <laughs> like, you know, I feel like I, maybe that's <laughs> where some of my sympathy with Goggle, uh, despite his like reactionary diatribes, like comes from because I understand like when you're expressing Being religious sentiments and all of your leftist friends or like, or your leftist fans are like, I <laughs> uh, get mad at you. No, no offense uh, to anybody. Yeah, that is not supposed to be a patronizing comment. But, yeah. I mean, uh, for any of the, the edgy yeah. atheists listening, you know, it's not just us that are taking religion seriously. It's also Comrade Stalin, so keep True. that in mind. Yeah, he, took it, he you did know. take it seriously, yes. Maybe uh, there would have been got, more development on this he front. He got a five if he, in Slavonic singing, so... Uh, wow. <laughs> all right. <laughs> and, you know, those songs from the Stalin era fucking slap. Like, the anthem, come on. Mm-hmm. True. Don't tell me he didn't have input on, you know, the glorious uh, Soviet anthem. It's, yeah, there's more. Yeah. yeah, this is an interesting topic. You know, it's it's interesting, like how, you know, that but anyway, I won't even uh, open any more cans of worms because we should stop. And also, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we'll return to we'll, the, I think it's, you know, the perennial theme, perennial so- theme. Yeah. Or the Art, sort religion, of, you know, religion, the witchcraft, you know, like a uh, monster sort of themes. Like it's interesting. But anyway, yeah, like yes, uh, yes. the opposition between the two, like and uh, secularism and how, yeah, like, uh, you know, now's the time of monsters. Anyway, we'll it stop. sure is. Yeah, it sure is. Uh, now is the time of monsters, but it's also time to end the episode. So, <laughs> yeah, until next time, dear listeners. Stay vigilant. Peace. Brasil e a sol